Hello everybody and welcome to Volume 2, Issue 60 of the Cana Rinse Podcast. In the last of our Half-Life series of podcasts, we review both Half-Life 2 Episode 1 and Episode 2. Beyond this, we speculate upon what may be yet to come for the Half-Life franchise, as well as expressing our hopes and fears for same. Joining me, Leon Cox, this week, Darren Gargett. Hello. James Carter. Hello. And Joshua Garrity. Hello. I think we should probably issue a spoiler warning on this one. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but it's hard to imagine that anyone who cares about Half-Life hasn't played these yet, but you never know. So this is fair warning. There will be spoilers. There are some pretty major things that happen in Episode 2 in particular, not so much in Episode 1, and we will talk about them. So, June 2006, who was there at the start? I wasn't, because I played the orange box. Uh, Darren? Oh, most certainly. When this was first announced, I was always at my computer, waiting for release dates. I was there, day dot, on the minute. Okay. And I was loving it. So this was uh, a year and a half after Half-Life 2 had come out, and a bit? Yeah, and it's strange, because the year and a half between Half-Life 2 and Episode 1 seemed longer than what the gap we're in now if you know what I mean like I can't believe it's been six years since we played these like that's, yeah. that's ridiculous six yeah six and a half years since this came out now episode one extraordinary uh James what about you recently did you play it or um I'm I'm one of these um strange folks who didn't play Half-Life 2 because of Steam basically um, ah. I essentially got a free copy with a graphics card update. Uh, NVIDIA, I think it was at the time, were doing um, free copy by a mail rebate type thing um, with graphics cards, and I happened to be upgrading mine in the few months before Half-Life 2 came out, and I booted up the game, and it told me I had to get a Steam account, so I took it out and threw it away. Um, <laughs> and now regret that horribly, obviously. Are you still rallying against uh, Origin and Uplay in the same way? Uplay, definitely. Um, <laughs> well, Nobody likes Uplay. Yeah, just, I mean, at the moment, obviously, especially because Ubisoft have got this uh, back and forth with, with Steam in the UK that's keeping uh, Assassin's Creed 3 and Far Cry 3 off, um, off Steam at the moment, only in the UK. Mm. Um, which is really strange uh, not to be given the choice of where you want to buy that. You would still have to use Uplay anyway, but um, yeah, very odd. Uh, but no, so the first time I played these and Half-Life 2 was actually in the orange box. I played the 360 version in, that would have been 2007, wouldn't it? That's when it came out, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, the whole Orange Box. Obviously, episode mm. two debuted as part of the Orange Box on all formats, I believe. Mm. Josh? Um, same as Darren, really. Uh, I am a huge fan of Half-Life 2, so I was absolutely going to have Half-Life 2 episode one on day one. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, as I, I think I was, I was in in the world of not having adequate PC between Half Life Two coming out and the Orange Box. I don't think I played Episode One on the PC first time around. I'm pretty sure I didn't play either episode until the Orange Box. So yeah, late late 2007. Uh, so during development, this was originally known as. Half-Life 2 Aftermath. It was the first internally handled add-on for a Half-Life game. As we discussed in the previous shows, things like Opposing Force were made by Gearbox. Uh, Did you follow the development, Darren and Josh? Um, Yeah, I do remember it being called Aftermath. Um, And to be honest, that's probably a better name for it now, because calling them Episode 1 and 2 would lead you to suspect there's more than two episodes so if they'd have like named them you know individually like aftermath and something or other then you wouldn't have been expecting an episode three um i don't really recall a lot about the development i mean i was there watching the blogs and stuff but um yeah it's such a long time ago that i've yeah. erased it from my brain uh Apparently this was, uh, whereas Mark Laidlaw was exclusively responsible for the writing, uh, the story and the and the script of Half-Life and Half-Life 2, the episodes have been a more collaborative affair, co-written with uh, Chet Falasek and Eric Walpaw. Um, whether this has been a good or a bad thing, we will find out. Um, before we go through the events of episode one and what we thought of it, our first bit of feedback from the forum is from Dom's Beard. He says, I started episode one, but it took me back to the only place I hated in Half-Life 2, the Citadel. So I put it on the back burner. And that's where I wanted to start, because I think that that move at the start of episode one to put the player straight back into the Citadel is probably Valve's worst ever mistake as a developer. Discuss. Hmm. I I didn't see it as a problem because they give you sort of context as to why you you do sort of need to go back in there. And for me personally, you get the visual treat of Dog picking you up in the van with Alex and throwing you across a chasm, which just before that you see that amazing scene with the train underneath you and stuff. And yeah, for me with Half-Life... Two and the episodes, they're all so well contextualised that you sort of, well, you feel like you are Gordon Freeman and you need to go back in the Citadel from stopping it imploding, I think. Mm. I actually liked this section in episode one way more than the uh, zero, uh, the super gravity gun section in um, Half-Life 2, simply because while there was a lot of combat it seemed to focus more on like this puzzly side of it as well. There's a section when you're in this power generator and the whole point of that section is trying to get this thing to stabilise and you're solving little puzzles that are meant to trick you into thinking Gordon Freeman some kind of uh, genius, but actually they're just really simple puzzles. But yeah, I, I, I kind of... I, I didn't mind it so much. For me, it's not really that it's not justified in the, uh, in the context of the story. It's just that it felt like, a, as a player, a, a literal and a metaphorical backward step in that 
it felt like the reward for doing all that at the end of Half-Life 2 was to go back in where you mm. come from. And I know on the Half-Life 2 show that I was one of the people who said that I actually enjoyed the Citadel in a way in that in that game that made perfect contextual sense to be at the end of the game in that bizarre frightening environment with all that uh, strange discordant noise and asymmetry and and in all that stuff uh but to be plunged back into it albeit you know different areas in a different state in a state of decay it didn't feel like what i was after from the start of the next chapter of gordon freeman's adventure and i found it i did find it very off-putting I think it's a strange one, isn't it? Because had it happened as part of Half-Life 2, it would be a very clear case of backtracking. You would just mm. have come out of the Citadel or been thrown out of the Citadel and then you would immediately go straight back in. Um, yeah, in very to much actually a, undo the damage that you've just done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, mm. In very much a sort of Halo way. And I mean, in Halo, it's you know that game's accused of, of lots of times of backtracking through entire levels. Um, and... They always contextualize it there. There's always a reason to have to go back out, but, and that's not really the the criticism that people are leveling at. It isn't that there's reason. the The criticism is that it's just redoing what you've done, and you're not getting to see anything new. It, that's the criticism, at least. I think in this plays, case, the citadel is in a different state than when you went in. Um, so, yeah. and there are moments like when dogs throwing you across the chasm, although. He could have been throwing you anywhere. That could have been to escape from that little section of map to get away from the citadel. You could still yeah. have had to have done that. There's, there's no particular um, reason that couldn't have been the case. Although it does make for quite a nice moment where uh, Alex has to sort of say goodbye to Dog and reassure him it'll be okay. That's very um, sweet. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a hug and the usual high quality animation and voice performances and yeah. and the, the sound from Kelly Bailey and all the stuff that we've lavished praise upon before, but. It's it's weird because it it sort of toys with convention. Obviously, the developers are still so very much in love with the zero point particle, whatever it's called, the gravity gun, um, that they give it to you as your first and only tool for the first sort of half an hour, three quarters of an hour of this game, maybe, um, which has also been the case for the last similar amount of time in the Half-Life 2 main game yeah. obviously every time prior to this when you started a Half-Life you start with I think you start with the crowbar and work up in the usual fashion through you know in the in that time-honored Doom or possibly even Wolfenstein tradition of, of gun then bigger gun shotgun and so on mm. um, but here the, I think part of the problem is that although you get to do you get to do more stuff with energy balls firing energy balls some very portal-esque mm. puzzles here obviously at this point we were a year and a half away from the completion of portal i don't know if narbacular drop was um sort of somewhere into development at this point away from valve but a lot of those firing of energy balls around into sockets we saw later in portal and it works mm. perfectly in in that game but here it wasn't was it just me or was were other people itching to get hold of an actual gun <laughs> Yeah, um, I yeah, completely agree. Like having that, having the gravity gun back in your hands, it. I can see why they wanted to do it because they wanted to sort of refresh your memory as to you know what you did before and you know how badass you felt in you know the end of Half Life Two. But yeah, I, I just wanted to play around with the gun some more and like the, the constant sucking in of enemies and spitting them back out again. It does get tiresome after a while, and it's it's probably not the best way to showcase the start of episode one if you know what i mean um i didn't mind the puzzles with the um the energy orbs um 
but they're, they're, they're just not they weren't really taxing like you can sort of immediately see what's going on like oh yeah. okay I have to bounce it off the glass and I just didn't really feel any sort of reward then, for yeah. doing the puzzles if you know what I mean like they just seem too simple for me <laughs> they're not portal puzzles they're just very they're simple distractions in mm-hmm. this game yeah they're closer to you know the sort of much maligned Resident Evil style puzzles you know find find correct correct key for for correct lock um, we should actually talk before we go further about how we end up back in control of Gordon, because we left uh, Gordon in stasis at the behest of the G-Man, mm. who has such powers at the end of Half-Life 2, uh, and it seems that, according to the intro of this game, that somehow the Vortigaunt, as a collective, are able to interfere with the G-Man's control of stasis, and he and they somehow physically move you outside um, and you come to to find Alex and Dog actually searching the rubble for you. So the Vortigaunts have actually moved Alex as well, presumably. Yeah, they, they sort of pluck her out of stasis in front of you. They, like You see her yeah, sort of like take that. a gasp yeah. of breath and she's like <gasps> and then she disappears. That's right. And yeah. then you see the door open, the traditional G-Man, you know, invisible door comes out of the, out of the blackness and uh, they get in the way, don't they, with like a barrier? And then, mm. he was, and then he says something like, "We'll see about that," and that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Because all you've seen of G-Man is like a one-to-one conversation, and now there's actually other entities interacting with G-Man. You know, and acknowledging and, his existence as well. Mm, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So there's a battle of supernatural wills between the G-Man, who we still don't know a great deal about, and the Vortigaunt, who we know were once enemies but are now human allies. Yeah. Which is very much the story of Episode One and Episode Two, really. Uh, certainly, the the overall arc. You get to know more about the Vortigaunts and more about, um, well, more hints at what G-Man might be after from all this. Mm. So uh, after restabilizing uh, on a temporary basis the very core that you had destabilized with your actions in the Citadel before, uh, you escape on a one of the the razor trains that you've seen going in and out of the citadel before uh this crashes after a, is it a flare i think it's a flare from the citadel is it crashes the train yeah something like that yeah uh and you end up uh finding your way out of a a dark zombie infested car park um there are antlion holes again which you have to fill up with cars with your gravity gun um there's an infamous section which apparently in in the first release was extremely difficult um but due to player monitoring they tweaked it which is the waiting for the elevator in the dark um just to say very quickly um Mm. the reason that not having a gun didn't bother me at all in the slightest was mm-hmm. because I'd already had a peek at the achievement list and I was doing this with one bullet. So I had no inclination <laughs> to pick up a, bullet, a gun of any kind, although I had to at one point, obviously, to blow the lock. But other than that, it was gravity gun all the way. So I'd already got myself into a frame of mind of, I'm going to have to use the gravity gun, which makes the opening great because all you need is the gravity gun. You don't have to think about making sure you know where the... Um, the bricks and the bottles and the the blades that you can you can throw around with the gravity gun are okay. So um, I was going to definitely talk about a couple of the achievements mm. in episode two. Yeah, we can two. save that for for later if you like. Um, no, 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 no. It's uh, it's as good a time as any. Mm. Um, the single bullet. Yeah. Uh, the one, what's it called? The one, one free. Yeah. One, uh, one free bullet one free or something bullet, like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so you're allowed to fire one actual gunshot. One gunshot. In the whole, whole episode one. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I assume you don't even have to fire that one if, if um, you don't want to. 
Or do you have to fire one there to is, get the achievement? There is a lock, isn't there? There's oh, a lock. You, so, yeah. you climb through ah. some vents, pop down, and you've got to pull a shotgun and a pistol and some ammo out of a um, right. like cage. Uh, and you've got to blow the lock on, on the door to um, let Alex mm. through. I think. And you can't hammer a lock off I with a gravity gun. You haven't got no. the crowbar so until I, 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 much I later in the game. I think you actually have to use that, that right. bullet there. Okay, so right. that is your bullet. Um, yeah. There's nothing in the game keeping track of this. Well, there is, but it's invisible. You, you so don't you know, ha- yeah. You literally... You, you just do yeah. not equip any weapon whatsoever in the game. Okay, and um, you, yeah, so all kills. This is a bit like the Ravenholm achievement where Very you only right. use the gravity gun, yeah. but it lasts for the full three to four hour length of episode mm. one. Uh, does it make? Did you play it on easy, normal, or hard doing this? Uh, cannot remember. I replayed them all recently on PC, and I just put it on easy to whiz through yeah. and see the story. I cannot remember because I don't think there's any achievements tied to difficulty. But I'm They're not sure. Not. No. So I, I, think I would I imagine would the best way would be easy. But I think I just left on... it at default difficulty. But I don't. I, know. I imagine it would be quite hard to get this achievement on hard. Oh, yeah, I would think so. That elevator section is is the reason I piped up because you have to run around there and you have to know where every single. Mm flare every um, canister everything is and you clear out all the zombies before you call the elevator and it's um we'll get to talking about this when we thought they were triggered by you calling the elevator there are some around if you go and explore the area there are a few kicking around beforehand and then there's more Uh, come afterwards so you clear out the ones that are already there and then you go and call the elevator obviously you can't move the flares because they light as soon as you pick them up but you can clock where they are because you'll need them you have to use them yeah of course there's also an achievement for for torching zombies with flares handily Uh, so you'll almost certainly get that if you're playing with the for the one single bullet zombie q i think it is isn't it yeah um that we should introduce that that's the new enemy type in this game which is the zombine which is a faster uh zombie combine um with which also chucks grenades at you takes a few more hits than a standard yeah. civilian head crabbed so this is a, a soldier who's been head crabbed and therefore are more trouble uh that was the other thing i i kind of didn't really register this i played through episode one last night uh, at the time of recording and episode two today both on easy just to uh, to go back through them i played them through before on normal um did i notice that the flashlight no longer runs down your torch no, it does. Uh, it does. It's it quite, does, it's quite yes. slow. You can keep it on for a long time, but in some of those sections, you do need to find a good spot to be able to turn it off and let it recharge. Um, the one change they did make, though, is that the flashlight's battery is separate from your general energy, so you oh, can sprint okay, that's for ages. Prob- right, that's why. That's yeah, why yeah. I didn't notice. Yeah, and I think that's to do with like a like a focus te- uh, focus test balance reason because you spend a lot of time in the dark in episode one, and yeah. for your bat- for your torch to disappear immediately, or not immediately, but quicker than but what it is, it, uh, probably would be a bit more of a pain in the ass, and and not be able to sprint as well. Yes, that yeah. that would be too punishing. I think probably too. Difficult. So this game really focuses on the 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 single player co op, if you will. Um, it's kind of like very much like Capcom attempted uh, three years after this in Resident Evil Five, but much better. Although, in terms of Alex being you know a better character than Shaver and her AI being better, but there's no. Um, shared uh you know you don't share items or ammo or anything like that she has she has a gun she can die though um if she takes enough of a battering hmm. yeah um, she does seem pretty invincible to me anyway yeah, yeah i've never I, seen I her die i had be, her die once i can't remember having her die at all 
I think she um I can't remember which section it is. It's uh it's it's one of the it's one of the sections where you get hemmed in basically, you know, it's a locked door trap room as it were. And I think she has probably an insanely high damage bar and I, I don't think you can hurt her with friendly fire, but I think if she's next to maybe exploding barrels and stuff like that, it'll take her a chunk. So yeah, I had her die once in, in the whole course I'll of the tell a lie. I did see her die a lot during that awful sequence on the lift in episode one. You're going down and the debris is falling from above you and you have to catch it with your gravity gun. The amount of times oh, yeah. I failed this bit and just saw Alex's Alex's limp body just flail in the sky. <laughs> I was just like, this is terrible. Because it's, it's a mouse and keyboard slash, you know, pad uh, war here. Because like, the pad isn't quick enough for me to grab these bits. And I'm having to line myself up and wait for the bit to come down as I'm replaying it on the Xbox pad. And then like, right, I'm right underneath it now. I'll save it and then I'll make sure I'll catch it <laughs> next time. Because I just couldn't keep up with the pace of the lift and... Oh, okay, I, I didn't find this bit too hard. There, there, so there are there are actually only I think three or four. These are huge chunks of debris coming down while you're on a fragile glass elevator, um, and this is when you've still got the powered up gravity gun. And this is actually a good illustration of what we were just about to talk about with the co-op stuff because it's not just about it's not co-op in the sense that you know you're you're flanking or anything like that but it's more like alex will tell you what to do and pr or in you know give you guidance and instruct you and this is a good example of that so you'll be sucking these large bits of uh, debris out the air to stop them smashing your lift and then firing them off hopefully far enough away from the lift to to not smash it but but this this sort of thing continues and as i was about to say with the flashlight this is this is another illustration of this where she'll keep she'll keep saying shine shine the light on the zombie so i can get a shot and and she will you know she's as good as her word if you shine a light on an enemy uh she will and obviously if you're going for the single bullet thing you are relying i presume a lot on alex to kill things for you with her yeah. infinite ammo yeah yeah very much i think the um the trick that I found with the the elevator or the difficult thing was just to know what to do because my first instinct was just to use the repel function on the gravity gun to to sort of blow them immediately away. And what you quickly realise is that um, throwing items that you've already captured and pulled towards you with the gravity gun is incredibly strong, but actually just sort of um, using that repel function to sort of knock them away is is actually relatively weak, even with the super gravity gun. So mm. what you you actually have to do, whereas the, the pull function, uh, the the sort of magnetic function of the gravity gun, um, is much much stronger. So you you can actually pull those bits of debris towards you. But my instinct was just to repel them, and two or three times, even on second playthrough, because I'd just forgotten. Um, two or three times I I found myself getting really frustrated because I knew I was lined up properly with the crosshairs and firing at it, but it just wasn't working. And it wasn't until I realized, okay, pull it towards you, then fire it yeah. away. Yeah, grab, um, then repel. Yeah, so I think that was the only bit that sort of that I got stuck with in regards to that. But no, Alex is, uh, is as you say, incredibly useful in that regard. Um, certainly any section where... Um, if you're trying to conserve ammo even, you can just shine lights on the zombies and make sure that you're protecting her and she will do a lot of um, a lot of the sort of legwork for you. Yeah, as we've seen previously, in, it was normally when uh, Gordon's lights were out, as it were, so you couldn't see it, but there were a couple of times in Half-Life 2 where Alex just totally kicks ass and then you come too and there's just a you know a corridor full of dead combine um soldiers and whatever and uh you know she's proved that she can handle herself 
but you've not really seen her in action before as here she will actually you know if if, uh, if an enemy alien gets you know close enough to her she will actually you know butt it in the nose or you know uppercut it or whatever she's you know she's she's pretty tough for a relatively small person yeah and alex is a character throughout of episode one she's just she becomes more so much more interesting by the end of episode one than she ever was in half-life 2 i mean she was good in half-life 2 but mm. there's so many little quips and quotes and bits of animation that she does it just makes you yeah. it just makes you really believe that she's a person like the, the attention to detail like well there's a bit where you're picking up a like a valve <laughs> valve and uh, you have to put it into a little socket and you you turn the valve and she says stuff, stuff like crank that gordon do you know what i mean and it's just the little things like that that most developers wouldn't put in there just a little bit of humor a, a little bit of like player notification just to let you know that you do have to crank it and it's just it's just the valve touch that just makes yeah. alex come alive there's a scene where you're in the train and it's a stalker cart, uh, cart and mm. um, there all these like stalkers in their little containers lined up. And Alex's reaction to that was really moving. It's just little moments like that that add a bit more depth to the character. Yeah, and like the bits where you shine the torch in her face and she covers her face. Like, oh, that's brilliant. It's just yeah. little touches like that just make this game oh, something special. Yeah, uh, credit again to Mel Dandridge for the for the voice performance. Brilliant all the way through both episodes. I think. Um, I think uh, again, it comes back to this whole uh, discussion. Some people like a silent protagonist. Some people really don't. Um, and it's it still seems amazing to me that it to me the Half Life games and the episodes prove that you don't need to have a talking protagonist to have great characters with great relationships with the NPCs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, um, the silent protagonist thing, you know, I didn't get to voice my opinion on Half-Life 2 cause I wasn't no. around for that, but the silent protagonist thing really does, doesn't bother me. Um, like I, if Gordon Freeman spoke, I'm pretty sure we would, you know, we wouldn't be having the same sort of conversation like, Oh, Gordon Freeman speaks too much and la da 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 da. But the fact that he doesn't speak, it does lend, itself more to immersion and but for me personally anyway i think there are some people who can't who can't fully immerse themselves in a game and become the character they constantly just view gordon freeman as a separate character which is just something i don't do that so i can imagine from that perspective that him being silent is you know really just seems really weird to them yeah. yeah yeah but for me it's just never an issue yeah, it very much seems to be that there are two kinds of people in this respect. Um, I'm definitely a, a pro-silent protagonist. I think I was thinking about it and a huge amount of my all-time favourite games have silent protagonists. Um, and I'd never really made the connection before, but I think it does. it actually aids my immersion, even though maybe what you're being presented is less realistic, but actually the effect, you know, is is stronger of being in in the in the uh, in the environment it's quite easy to to dismiss and point at someone like marcus phoenix and and every word that comes out of his mouth can kind of just be ridiculed um (laughs) and obviously there are situations where there are um be it third person or first person um vocal protagonists who have character very well defined and and very well done but if you're the sort of person who finds it difficult to 
put up with, if for want of a better phrase, a character like Marcus Phoenix, who is this very defined character and does things his way, and especially if if that's not the way you would handle a situation, mm. um, it can be an awful lot easier to immerse yourself in a game, I think, um, if you're faced with a protagonist who's silent, because there's nothing that they're doing necessarily that puts you on edge or puts you you know ill at ease with what they're saying or what they're doing or the way they sound or the way they look necessarily um i feel the need to state that I, i'm not anti speaking um protagonist no, it's, of course not. it's no. simply that i like having the you know the choice i like that developers have the choice sorry yeah is a better it doesn't way have to be it. one way is the way forward and and I, I hope that we don't end up in a world where all you know, it's like, oh, Silent Protagonist is such a, you know, it's decided that it's a hangover from the days when, you know, games were simpler things. Um, the fact is that it is it is a, an artistic and or a narrative consideration that, that should be a choice, as you say, Josh. Well, I think that's partly because it's a first-person game as well, where you don't see Gordon Freeman every second of the, the game. Like if, if You never see him. Yeah, yeah, um, not since Blue Shift. Um if Nathan Drake was a silent protagonist, it wouldn't work because you're always seeing him on the screen. You're not really him, if you know what I mean. Like you do control him, and you you get to third person and first person silent protagonist. Very yeah, it's a different thing. But that said, I still prefer Dead Space One to Dead Space Two for that. Well, yeah, it's a good point. I think I think it's to do with a character's face. Like I can accept it in Dead Space One because Isaac doesn't really have a face for most of it until right at the end. Mm. Whereas with two, they're constantly taking off his helmet, and mm. with characters like uh, John Marston and Nathan Drake, they they have faces, and so you expect a human identity to come from that. I'm entirely happy with uh, speaking protagonists if they're well written. I think yeah, that's what yeah, it comes down yeah, to. Absolutely. If they're John Marston uh, and maybe Nathan Drake, you know, then yeah. Anyway, that's a kind of guide in to this show but it is obviously relevant um wouldn't it be bizarre if we will talk a little about half-life 3 or episode 3 later if, imagine if they came back in with gordon freeman as a you know with like the first promotional thing for half-life 3 is a cut scene where you see gordon oh. like you know wisecracking in a oh. in a in, in a voice i didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even think that was a possibility it's not even a fear because it's not going to happen because at this point um <laughs> what voice what character would <laughs> suffice because everyone's got a different idea of who he is yeah. and you're going to there's too yeah. many people to disappoint by giving him a voice um i've just played far cry 3 and i could have done very well without knowing that that character yes. that protagonist was just an idiot even from even from the promotional stuff of of far cry 3 i know that i would rather play that game as a a non-entity uh and as a as a a, a cipher avatar definitely yeah yeah absolutely so if Gordon Freeman was going to turn out to be that kind of character and uh, <laughs> there are places for making the character the the protagonist unlikable or um having oh, him be grating yeah. but um that's I, a I fascinating thing to do in a game at, at this, again if it's written well yeah, it's fascinating. yeah exactly but i think at this point people feel that they've got to know gordon even though they haven't really just by virtue of the people that he's surrounded by and the way that they treat him we know certain things about him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in fact, that was one of the. I was going to say to you fellas. I don't know if you find yourselves doing this. Obviously, you know, one of the jokes, one of the the 
the sort of things that's used to take the piss out of Half-Life is that the things that Gordon gets up to when he's, you know, he'll be in a room with people talking about the potential end of the human race and he'll be running around taking a plant, putting it on a teleport, smashing a monitor <laughs> and all this. But I don't know about you, but there are quite a few bits in the episodes where um, Alex or, or Eli or somebody will say, oh, Gordon will go and do that. He's always up for this sort of thing. And then Alex will look at look at you at wherever you're standing into the camera and say, you're, you're up for this, aren't you, Gordon? And I always flick the left stick or the mouse up and down. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally up for this, whatever it is. Because firstly, you know, I understand as well as Valve does that, I don't have a choice. Well, the choice is don't play the game anymore or do the thing. And, and there's a kind of honesty to it, I think, that other games sort of go jump through hoops to try and convince you that you that you have some great agency. But Half-Life is actually kind of the most blatant about the fact that it's linear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's quite shocking to realise that Half-Life is surprisingly linear because the world around you feels so true that you you know you're in there and you're making the choices through this world like you know your choice to venture into a different room as opposed to the actual room to send you through the the actual game it's it's weird because like that room will just lead you to a dead end which maybe has a shotgun and you're like oh great i did that but eventually you will go down this one tiny corridor into the next room and it's it's the attention to detail like we said that valve give to their games um that make you feel like it's not non-linear it's it's crazy I prefer the illusion of freedom to yeah. absolute freedom in games anyway, because yeah. I just get intimidated when a game goes, oh, do whatever the hell you want, and you're like, ah, I'm not going to play this. <laughs> but even, even, in, even in the most open world of games, it's only ever an illusion. You know? I mean, yeah, yeah. But, but there's a difference between giving a player openness and freedom and, and leaving them directionless, and I think that's something that um, Valve have recognised quite well, because when we think of linear games, we talk about you know corridor shooters and that sort of thing they're games mm. where you literally walk down a corridor because every door on either side of the corridor is either invisible or visibly closed um and and it's just linear because literally you could draw a line along the ground and that's the line you're walking and somehow despite the fact that the story and uh, as you said Darren the Darren the key beats of what you're going to be doing are very linear it's a dot to dot but what happens between those dots kind of makes you feel much more free than you really are for some reason and i don't know what it is about it but the i really like the uh, the balance between those two and it feels different to a lot of other games where you'd sort of peg them into open world and uh linear uh, in sort of binary categories half-life does something strange about straddling that where the narrative's linear but the world doesn't feel so linear i think that's because they modeled city 17 on real world locations so like where there would be like a wheelie bin for example they'd model that there and it it kind of reminds you of real life like oh yeah you're like there would be a a wire fence here with a wheelie bin behind it because that's what the world is like it's Mm. so if you look at the bible they're raising the bar book like they showed direct comparisons of what the in-game model looks like compared to the real world location and it's, it's pretty faithful to how the you know the real world is and I think that's why it feels so open because they do the little details of the real world in this linear uh, environment. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I've been playing uh, almost concurrently with this uh, Shenmue for forthcoming Kane and Rinch shows, and it's a very similar experience in in that regard. Obviously, the graphics have aged more in uh, in Shenmue because it's a Dreamcast game, but that same thing actually trying to make 
a real world place look like a real world place does benefit immersion um i know it sounds like an obvious thing but i think it's something that a lot of uh developers miss and it's partly because you know they will set their games in completely fantastical environments but actually even if you're playing in a, a fantasy world village or something um you know th thinking about something like a, a bethesda game um in some ways the the towns and and places in those games are, are wonderful and beautiful and i think skyrim perhaps they went a bit further with making it look like a real place but um there are certain things about the the way that buildings are laid out in relationship to each other and the, and the you know the the way that paths go in from one place to another that I, you know, like weirdly, even though it seems like a more artificial game in some ways, like Dragon's Dogma, really, the places in it feel more like real places. I don't know. It's uh, it's a very difficult thing to to quantify, but it's it's a strange one because the um, the small sort of village or group of houses where the ambush is in in episode two, mm. um, it, it's weird. That it's along a stretch of road, but it's it's a curving road, so it, it mm. sort of um, chicanes or or does a U-turn back on itself a couple of times. And yet, when I had to go up the hill back to turn the generator off, I went along the road, and it was only when I came back out that I realised, hang on, I'm in a rush here. Why don't I just go, you know, as the crow flies? And you start thinking, well, there's no reason that couldn't have been a straight road that you had to go all the way back along, but because it feels, I don't know, it just feels more like this is a sort of mountainside. It's a little bit, it looks like a little village. It's got a little in and the road is cut into the, to the, the hill to, because that's how you drive up. That's how you get a road to go up a hill. And it zigzags because yeah, as you say, that's, that's how you go up Otherwise a hill. Otherwise the gradient would be too yeah, steep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's no reason that couldn't have been a straight section of road and you just had to go all the way back along it. But it just somehow feels like there's something more, there's more attention being paid to, to why it should be this way and and how that makes the player feel. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it you know just it's all this stuff keeps your brain interested from you know drifting away into you know the the expectation that yeah in in a traditional space corridor shooter and you know not that there was anything wrong with those and and a good one still done well is still a fun can be a fun time but when it is just you know uh, endless look-alike corridors like a you know 70s doctor who or something where they didn't have any money for multiple sets so it's like redress sets all the all the way around um it may not feel quite as uh as like you're yeah like you're there i suppose um yeah i, I mean obviously we'll get we'll get to that but episode two as it as it goes on does sort of start much like chunks of the main half-life 2 game does start to dabble with wider open areas but episode one's very much restricted and contained and i think maybe that's something that is one of the reasons that it's perhaps considered the the weak link of the half-life 2 series it's a lot of small boxy areas um and there's no sort of real sort of style or design that we haven't seen before there's a lot of maybe reused assets and stuff and although it's you know it's it's well done i, I don't think perhaps it does feel as much it doesn't feel in episode one to me as much like there's as much care been taken over it as in the main game or in episode two. I think it's more that they're not pushing themselves to uh, be more creative and be 
uh, and challenge themselves to create something a bit different in episode one. They're just going along at a comfortable pace and it's and it they're going with what works and it's still great you know because it's half-life 2 and half-life 2 is a great game and i don't mind replaying similar sections to that game but with episode 2 which i'm sure we'll get onto it just feels like the team were thinking to themselves let's push the limit of the source engine let's see what we can really do with this thing yeah it feels like they're showing off more um and yeah. i think we'll presumably talk about the uh, the episode moniker later on but mm. we have to remember this came out a year and a half after half-life 2 and, and that's not an inconsiderable period of time but what it is when you're you're pitching and proving an, an episodic game release schedule is a concern that you're gonna have to be able to put games out quite or episodes out quite quickly and therefore you're gonna have to be efficient with the way you use things uh, and and any assets you've got become assets that can be reused so um the obviously the trick is to do it in a way where the player doesn't feel that it's being reused in a similar way to backtracking i think that's p- quite possibly one of the reasons why you spend some time at the beginning going back through the citadel and then a lot of the other areas that you're in feel like areas of city 17 yeah because Which is exactly, exactly what they are. are. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I don't know how much they were trying to con- sort of conserve themselves uh, mm. in terms of creativity, but yeah, Josh is absolutely right. It feels like they are stretching themselves uh, to their to their fullest in episode two. I think. Well, apparently episode two was actually developed simultaneously with episode one, which would suggest that it had an extra year and a half in development. Um, it is one and a half times as long, arguably. Um, episode one takes about three to four hours to to beat. Um, episode two is more like five to six hours. Uh, so the fact that they had the extra time, um, you know, incremental improvements to the source engine, and 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 obviously feedback from episode one, which was probably some of the most negative Valve had had up to that point. Um, it was it was reviewed well, but it wasn't reviewed as well as perhaps a, a Half Life, a Valve Half Life Two titled game would expect to be reviewed. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't hitting the high nineties. It was, you know, hitting the eighties, the mid eighties. And I think generally, when you hear people talk about Episode One now, it's in a fairly negative light. And Unfortunately, I, I've heard recently on a, a few podcasts, and I don't know whether this is anecdotal or whether this is people basing this on other people's experiences or their own, but quite often now I hear that um, people talk, lump them together and say, oh, the episodes were kind of meh. And like, we'll talk about episode two, but I don't, I don't think it's fair at all to talk about episode two like that because I think it's very, very high quality. Um, but I think, and also based on the fact that we really struggled to get sort of forum feedback and uh, a listener interaction for this issue of the podcast suggests that people didn't want the Half-Life 2 episodes or they, they have a very different, you know, talking about Half-Life 1 and 2 evoked so much conversation and passion from our community. But the episodes, it's like, I think everyone here on this show is was was just as interested in them as the main game, but I don't get that sense from outside. It's strange, isn't it? Because I, I don't think that's a fair way to treat episode one in, in 
in all honesty mm. i think mm. episode one as a continuation of half-life 2 is is still fantastic if that had been dlc uh, and let's face it valve would have released that dlc free on on PC. it is to all t- intents and purposes dlc yeah, isn't it, I suppose. if it had been then it would have been you know received rather differently i suspect um i think it's just by virtue of the high standards that valve have set and um perhaps looking back on it i don't know maybe valve would feel differently about perhaps making half-life 3 rather than half-life 2 episode 1 and, and 2 maybe they would have given it you know it's it's full due as pairing these together and calling them a, a full sequel but um I believe Gabe Newell has gone on record as saying that really they should have called these Half-Life 3, the three, the, the mooted three episodes should have been Half-Life 3 and, and maybe, but then I wonder if because in, in, in many ways they are only incremental, when you compare the difference between Half-Life 1 and oh, Half-Life yeah, 2, yeah, yeah, yeah. if yeah. they'd put these out as Half-Life 3, people would have said, well, really, these are more like DLC. So Yeah, yeah can't win either way, I, I think. No, is, I think is, that's true. Yeah, it but, kind of just harkens back to what I said at the start. Like They should have called it Half-Life 2 subtitle, I think, because mm. it, it, it does carry on the story. Um, but they, I think calling them episodes would have, it, it just implies too much. Like, you know, they were going to get, you're going to get loads of these episodes, but if you'd have called them aftermath and you know, whatever it would have, mm. I think expectations would have been different. I think you're right. So we got up to, um, the pace, the place where the reactor destabilizes again, uh, once they've got away, um, Alex and Gordon meet up with Barney. Uh, they are in the middle of Barney is in the middle of uh, some kind of um, Civil War America style emancipation where he's using an underground railway to get slaves away um, Alex and Gordon agree that they will run decoy to because the combine are after them because Alex is carrying an important uh, the MacGuffin is a, a packet of vital data uh, yeah. it looks like mace spray on her hip that's right. Not, not that I'm familiar with what kind of mace spray looks like <laughs> <laughs> at close quarters. You carry it, carry it with you at night. Um, so this leaves you. This leads you to. Um, uh, there's a little escort mission here, uh, a mm. bit repetitive. I think this is one of the bits that people don't really like about episode one, and I can understand why. You're, you're toing and froing across a uh, a car strewn courtyard courtyard yeah. i don't know entrance yeah, yeah. to a railway it's, station yeah. you have to make four or five trips back and forth with different groups of survivors there's an achievement or a trophy or a steam achievement for not having anyone die on you in this run obviously much easier on easy um i noticed and i don't know whether this was this particular speech sample was in the original release or whether this was a little cheeky nod from valve that's been added after you make the first run across with the first four uh, resistance members to get them to the train, Alex says, that wasn't so bad. We should have brought everyone over at once. Yeah, because <laughs> um, like, oh. yeah, uh, there's no combine there. So you totally should have done that. But instead you do it in dribs and drabs of twos, threes and fours at a time. Um, each time you come back out, somehow the combine have managed to lay a whole load of new hoppers and park a car and have people rappelling down a building. And um, I don't think this section's very well handled. It's quite annoying. It's I, I like the idea, you know, rescuing the dudes and escaping on the trains. It, it's it's cool. Like that's a good setup. But they should have used Nintendo's rule of three, where it's like you do it three times instead of five, because you get to the fourth one and you're just like. 
oh, what, really one more are you are you joking yeah, and they keep busting through the windows in different places and they try and mix it up a little bit by changing the geography but mm. very ever so slightly but and, yeah and by that point you're just frustrated at the fact they've not one of the trains down to block your way you're just That's like right. no i want to run through this bit and get to the yeah. end like yeah it's a little bit too long there are concessions i mean each time you have a medic with you and if you walk up to the medic um they will give you a health pack so they can kind of keep you topped up. But mm. the other, th- yeah, I think part of the problem is that once you've got past the sort of third time, you're kind of wondering how many more trips, because each time you go yeah. back to Barney, there's just a group of two, three or four people yeah. stood behind them and then blackness behind that. So you don't even have a kind of idea no. of, well, there's eight people left. That's two groups or three. It groups feels or, very gamey, doesn't it? It's just for Half-Life, unusually. Yeah, so. it feels like you're going back to Barney and he's just off you go one more time, you yeah. know, each time. And it's it's a little it feels like padding, to be honest. Um, you know, this is a game, as I say, on, on second playthrough on easy, lasted about three hours. Uh, yeah. But without this section, it would have been about <laughs> two hours and 45, which would have uh, would have been yeah. uh, slightly preferable, I feel. And, and given it, it kind of forms the climax of episode one. It, it's, it does. It's the, the end, set it's, piece, it's, really, It's isn't kind it? of the final set piece, yeah. yeah. And we've had set pieces before, the elevator and certainly the opening section going through the... The Citadel; those are those are set pieces um, it, to a certain extent, but this is this is sort of the the climax of the third act of this particular episode, if you like. Uh, um, yeah, and if you were playing this at the time, as Josh and Darren were in two thousand six, you had this was like your big cliffhanger suspense moment, or just before it anyway. Um, for the next eighteen months, uh, I would have imagined it was a bit of an anticlimax. Um, the the end of the story is that there's one more actually there is one more set piece where a strider uh, attacks and you are split up from Alex temporarily which happens a few times, um, but you know and, and it's and it's cool it, it's it's a cool moment when the it's always cool when a strider arrives and it's always cool when you take it down, um, and then the citadel explodes, um, in traditional end of section fashion so I suppose that is more of a payoff but. But the last thing that I remember doing when I played this again was was the train escort and wasn't a fond memory. No, it kind of fits in with Half-Life as a whole, though, because Half-Life 1 ending, zen, it's, it's poo. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the endings of Half-Life 2, climbing up the Citadel and taking Breen down, not the best. The, the escort, you know, with the trains, again, it's not the best bit of the game. And even in episode 2 with the... Um, you know, defending the buildings and stuff—it's not the best. So, the, oh, the actual... we're going to disagree. Ooh, <laughs> now, th- th- this is a this is a controversial, uh, a divisive section. The, 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 the whole Magnuson device section. We'll, so we'll uh, get to that, though. I think. We, yeah, we can, definitely. We can leave that. I get what you mean, though. Yeah, mm, it, it just feels like the the playing of the end of Half Life games for me are never the best bits, and it just sort of fits in. <laughs> And at least episode two has a, a has a fantastic narrative, uh, an, an emotional yeah. payoff. As I, a, I think it's yeah. fair to say that, that oftentimes these games are about the journey more than the the destination, because the the destinations tend to be fairly. I don't know. I'm not really sure how to take them. Obviously, episode two is a bit different, but. Um, riding out on the train at the end of episode one kind of feels like you're pressing pause rather than getting a proper closure to to episode one. And I mean, having said that, certainly I think the the thing with the end of episode two or the set piece at the end of episode two, there, there's definitely kind of that sort of fist fist pump, if you like, at the end where yeah. you've you've succeeded. And, oh yeah. And a bit like that with the Strider fight as well. You're working your way through that um, room and. 
certainly first time I played it multiple deaths trying to get through that room mm. uh, with the strider attacking you and enemies sort of streaming at you as well um, and and you get a bit of a, th- a sort of thrill getting through that but the the train section feels more like a chore than it should and I think that's just by virtue of how many times you have to do that if you'd gone through once and it was fine and then the second time they started throwing enemies at you that would have felt like you know the challenge and you could have got through that and if you get everyone to survive there's your heroic moment or you know you're that's that's what gives you the boost to carry on um but the way it, it just feels like a bit of a damp squib it feels more like yes i've done that you know ticking it off a list rather than um f- leaving you feeling good about having done it i suppose mm. So yes, you are. You do leave episode one uh, on a train with Alex um, as the citadel finally explodes in um, predi- uh, spectacular style, and um, the the action basically pauses as the screen is going white and all kinds of debris are flying towards you. Uh, episode two begins in with a train wreck, and uh, once again, you are in it, um, and. Fortunately, you and Alex are both unharmed. The end of episode one was, as a story thing, really interesting because you saw the the advisors in their sort of ship containers. They they all all spread out of the citadel before it imploded, and you just saw these little ships flying around. Oh yeah, they give you sort of like the red headache thing. Like that, that that's like a visual headache to me when those things are near you, and like the red thing hits the screen. You're like, oh, that's probably what a headache looks like. Do you know what I mean? And uh, (laughs) it's migraine esque. Yeah, yeah. If you ever had a proper migraine, yeah. Yeah, Gemma, my girlfriend suffers with migraine. She always mentions like, oh, I can't see in the corner of my eyes and That's stuff right. like this. And yeah. the image they put on the screen definitely represents what yeah. I think a migraine looks like. Yeah, it's it's. I've only ever had a, a couple of full-blown migraines, but it's yeah. it's a good uh, sort of yeah interpretation of it. Let's put it yeah, that it, way. It evokes the right uh, the right atmosphere mm. and feeling about it. Yeah, definitely. and again, Alex lends this scene very well because she's like holding her head, going, "Oh, what is that?" And it all feeds into you thinking, "God, these advisors aren't." good things at all like they're like the worst of the worst that the combine can offer yeah um these are the really the big bad uh, of of half-life uh, uh, such as it is now and particularly episode two ironically they look like possibly the cutest of the of the uh i know as as, as sort of uh as, they're creepy as combine go. They're, they're creepy but they almost look like they should be in teletubbies or something like that you know they they look like little bits of plasticine that a kid's just dressed up you know or like yeah but when they slide up their little face mask and the little proboscis yes comes oh out, definitely yeah and then they're sort of they do a whole alien-esque uh thing nasty nasty business uh they're like clowns you know <laughs> they seem friendly but they're crying inside yeah no, they're just evil.
learned that the Combine are trying to open up another portal to the far side, the other dimension from where the the nastiness comes. Um, this, obviously, because the humans are already kind of on their knees, although trying to make a, a last stand, uh, somebody says, you know, this this won't be the seven-hour war, this, as, as what happened last time, this will be like seven minutes or something. Um, so this portal must be shut down. Uh, the reason that Alex and Gordon are attracting so much attention, although Gordon doesn't normally seem to need any help, is that she has this uh, contact code which is crucial to these plans that the Combine have. Including a message from uh, Judith. Dr. Mossman, yeah. yeah. That's right, regarding, as we find out later, the infamous uh, Aperture Science Borealis. Yeah. So this is where the whole portal and Half-Life thing collides. Although we didn't know it at this point. No. In the last Half-Life 2 episode, Carl Moon mentioned he'd played the um, the downloaded leaked version of Half-Life 2, uh, which I did as well. And I don't want to go on about too much, but um, I was working at Rare at the time, and me and my mate Scott, or mate at the time, I don't know where he is now, <laughs> uh, we, we downloaded this because we were anxious to play Half-Life 2. And yeah. that was Borealis. They gave, you Bore- they gave you a ship with, remember in Half-Life 1, the ninja women who yeah. backflipped? And yeah, it was them, but robot versions, and... It was that on the Borealis. I remember that distinctively, and it's missing from Half-Life 2, Episode 1 and 2, and the actual game, which is strange, because it was in the leak, like, you could play Borealis, and uh, if I'd have known that back then, I'd have been all over it. It's, uh, there, there was some uh, concept art from Episode 3 leaked uh, in summer 2012, and I believe um, this includes uh, Gordon in some... The, the, we'll, we'll get to it, but obviously the, the idea was that the plot was... was um, Alex and Gordon were leaving to fly north to the Borealis to destroy it. So I think the idea is, stroke was, that episode three was, will be set in the Borealis, but we'll we'll speculate on that later. So uh, there's another uh, science base called White Forest to the north of City 17, where there is a rocket which has a satellite which can tap into the old Black Mesa relay and shut down the Combine portal. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's Half-Life launching a missile sequence where I don't really know why, but I sort of do, but I don't. <laughs> it's um, They obviously tell you, because in Half-Life 2 and the episodes, that there's a lot more voice acting and mm. you know a lot more story going on. But when I every time I launch that missile, I just think, why? What? Oh, yeah, there <laughs> they, you go. They why. say they need to get it high enough to transmit a code or something like that. There you go. Um, <laughs> It, all you need to know is don't worry about the science. It's 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 like the sort of stuff Doctor Who, sorry, the Doctor spouts off in Doctor Who. Um, it's more about what happens. What you need to know is that you need to, that rocket needs to get in the air to stop the end of humanity. That's what you need to know. Uh, so off you set towards the White Forest, uh, and this is where you first you meet your first Combine Hunter. Hello. Hello, Josh. <laughs> so, uh, is is this what you named yourself after, or are you a? Was it a that you are a comments. combine hunter, or is it a pun? Uh, no, I named myself after this uh, okay. creature uh, because it's really cool. Yeah. Um, I I thought the enemy designs in the original Half Life Two were really cool, mm-hmm. but this is possibly my favourite enemy design in the entire Half-Life franchise. Describe the Combine Hunter. Um, it's kind of like a Strider. It's The best way to describe it is if the Strider is a T-Rex 
then the uh, Combine Hunter is a Velociraptor. Good, it's, good, cool. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's a Strider mixed with an Advisor, really, a small version of Advisor on. Yeah, so they bipedal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can climb. They can jump. Uh, yep. No, th- th- this is the cool thing about them, and and uh, the developers said as much that the reason they're they're supposed to be so imposing because they're fast and they are multi-terrain. They can jump in windows, come in roofs, go through doors, whatever. You n- you can't really be safe from a hunter. Yeah, hence hence yeah. the name change from. I mean, well, not name change, but the difference in the name of a Strider, which is just it's towering above you. Hunter, mm. it's coming after you, and it will keep coming. You know, it's very much. Uh, almost Terminator-esque, uh, although again, it looks nothing like it. Again, the sound design yeah. for this creature is spot on. It's so perfect. It just, when it charges towards you and it makes that cry, you feel terrified. You feel intimidated. You first see one uh, looking through. You, you've had to separate from Alex, leave her outside to, as usual, go in a building and put a, put a plug in or something like that. Um, and you turn around in this room and there's one staring through the window at you and that is so cool. Um, that's not the first time you see one. When you first go outside and you're with Alex, there's one on a building on the left-hand side. And oh, I, okay. I only ever noticed that last week when I played it. I was like, there's one up there. And he quickly shuffles behind the sign. And it disappears. <laughs> and I think that's the one that then appears in the window behind you when you inevitably right. plug another thing in, you in hear Half-Life. The, you hear their noises, don't you? Mm, a, yeah, a few you, times. Yeah. You definitely see one on a building and I just couldn't believe it until I saw it. I was like, yeah. oh, Jesus. A bit like the G-Man, you, you get glimpses of and you really start to feel like they're stalking you when you notice those. Um, you really feel like you are being hunted and chased um, and they're picking their moment for when you're least yeah. expecting it and least prepared to deal with it. That's the thing I got from them is that they felt intelligent yeah. Um, yeah. as opposed to some like some of the AI for Half-Life isn't the best, but no. the, the way the AI it was for these creatures, I did feel like they were planning and they weren't just stupidly charging towards me. Like sometimes I was you know, in this part of a room and I had some good cover. So instead of charging at me, they just start firing their explosive rounds at me. And it felt like they knew they didn't have to go in there. They could just fire at me from a distance. But when I'm outside, they want to get up close and personal. So as well as a fierce melee attack, they have these flechettes, uh, exploding pink darts, which uh, I could not remember for the life of me how... I I got the achievement on the 360 version five years ago for killing a hunter with its own flechettes. I couldn't remember how you do that. Uh, Tear it out of the wall before it explodes with a gravity gun and fire it back at it. Oh, okay, it is that, right. What I did Mm. was uh, picked up a rubber tyre. Oh, you could throw it It would fire its things at me. They'd stick in the rubber tyre and then just fire the rubber tyre right back at them. just brilliant. See, that's that's, that's the sort of thing that you can do in Half-Life that yeah. maybe you couldn't do in, in somebody else's game. Yeah, actually, that's the that's the very easy way to get it. Because the problem, if you try and pull them out of the wall, is yeah. you don't have a lot of time. Um, no. That's the thing about the flechettes. And it actually adds to the intimidation of the of the hunter because you you get the sort of you get a bit of screen shake when when it's hitting you and mm. then you know like the needler in, in Halo you know that two or three seconds later you're going to see a lot of damage because they'll mm. actually all blow up and they have a cumulative effect as well so if you've taken two or three hits then the uh, the damage that they'll do imminently is is all the worse and you get that sort of not in your stomach knowing that you know there's there's more to come and there's nothing you can do about it so this is one of those horrible moments where control is actually taken away from you, from the player to the closest thing that Half-Life comes to a cutscene. 
Uh, obviously, you're still looking through Gordon's eyes the whole time, but uh, Alex is quite brutally attacked by a hunter. Um, she takes some fleshettes and some melee attack, and she's pretty much critical yeah. while you're trapped under some rubble. Mm, further cementing the, the idea that the hunters are real deadly because you don't see Alex get injured in this way before and the, the sound, the, the piercing of the you know the body of Alex like when she gets yeah. stabbed, it's just like, God, these hunters are actually like deadly. Do you know what I mean? They are serious yeah. about their business. And numerous times they wait until you're separated from one another before they attack as well. So, mm. um. so the hunter fortunately leaves Alex for dead, though she is not, and a Vortigaunt turns up and smacks down an ant lion which is very cool, and carefully uh, lifts up Alex's limp body and asks you to escort her, but you are rapidly split up when, as usual, Gordon, like an idiot, falls down a mineshaft or something like that. There's a real interesting moment here where you see a Vortigon interact with another one from far away, and they do some oh, sort of that. weird yeah. call. You've never seen it before because it's always, cl- you know, they're either attacking you in the first game or they're talking to you up close and personal or they're, they're wearing a chef's hat in Half-Life 2 and stuff like that. But this mm. time you actually see them call from, uh, it feels like miles away because the way Half-Life and the Source Engine do their sound design, mm. like when you fire a gun in Half-Life 2 in the City 17, you hear the echo of the bullet like four or five times down the city and you're like, that's that's another touch, and then when you hear the Vortigaunts go across the across, across the world, you're like, what what are they saying? And like, how far away are they? And stuff yeah, like that. It's, there's it's, a hollow sort of echoey quality to it that really, yeah, really leads you to believe that. Again, uh, well, Lou, Lou Gossett Jr. does the Vortigaunt voices, and he's ah, fantastic. No, no, it's not him. That's the thing I was about to bring up in episode two. Tony Todd. Oh, you're plays quite the right. The, the former, the former Candyman. Candyman yes. Various other horror. Yeah, statements yeah. yeah. Um. What happened there? Do we know? I have no idea. All I know is that they changed the voice actor and I didn't really notice until I looked it up. Yeah, um, um, and, and the stupid thing is I have the cast list here in front of me. Um, but, yeah, that's... I don't know if it was a contractual thing or, or what. But, um, yeah, Tony Todd, who you may know as Candyman. What else has he has he done? He's, he's I know him mainly as Candyman. He's different uh, horror films through as, as sort of... Yeah creepy guy who has a lot of knowledge about what's going on but doesn't yeah. I'm struggling to think what it was exposition dude yeah yeah um he's uh yeah that's weird okay well it, obviously they they stuck with an african-american voice um for the vaunticaunts which which makes sense uh he's currently playing dreadwing in transformers prime on the tv uh he's also been in call of duty black ops 2 recently amongst other things so yeah a busy actor but yeah that's um I'd totally forgotten that. Well spotted. But anyway, he does a great job of keeping the Vortigaunts By going. By virtue I think. of us not knowing that it was, it was yeah. changed. Yeah. I, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, That and that calling is fantastic. And actually, you raise a really good point about the, the Source Engine. Even in, in stereo, which is how I've been playing this uh, via headphones, The it's something that so many games get wrong, which is that the distance away things sound reflects what you're seeing on the screen so many game mixes have it so that things are either they sound miles away when they're like six feet away or they sound too close and and you know just that level of detail that often gets things wrong where even when you're fighting in the field that final section when you're surrounded by uh compatriots when they cheer you for taking down a strider they all sound like they're the right distance away when they give their cheer and stuff like that and it's again it's really important for 
that sense of place. Yeah, it's something that obviously, um, like Foley artists, when you're talking about film and TV, really have to pay a lot of close attention to. Think about how a sound would be heard and what it would sound like, um, or how noise would sound. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, mm. Given the environment you're in, the distance you are away from something, and and what's going on at the time, and how much background noise would get in the way, and it's something that it takes just that extra bit of thought. And I think it it shows. It was one of a few things that killed Far Cry Two for me. The the actual mm. the the environmental sound. Awful. The the, yeah. the, vo- the vocals the voices are are awful in that game as well. Yeah, very bad. And you just can't tell, like, you, you're in this pretty beautifully drawn African environment, but you can't tell where anything is around you. And this is a game where spatial awareness is crucial because it's a sort of stealth shooter. And both those things, stealth and shooting, you really need to know yes. your that position in relation to other one things. One of a number of reasons why the stealth in that game doesn't really work, but that's for a, a different time. In a, if we ever do yeah, the Far exactly, Cry 2. Yeah, if, one, if we yeah. can bring ourselves Maybe we could do the series. <laughs> Maybe not. Anyway... So, uh, <clears throat> you end up in these tunnels. Yes. Uh, sort of... A larval extract to uh, revive Alex. Not quite yet. Yeah, we're not quite, quite there yet. You're just okay. following... All you know is that the, the Vortigaunt needs to meet up with his fellows uh, yeah. in order to save Alex. Um, and you are split up from him down the mine shaft, as you said, Leon. And it's at just this point, you're of, just trying to get yeah, to just trying to get to him, basically. Yeah. Um, um, but you you do see your first. You're seeing these larval grubs, and these are sort of um, antlion relations, aren't they? Because there's these acid ones and the baby ones, and then later we'll see the guardian one, which is a kind of glowing variant of the one we fought in the large antlion mother type creature we saw in in Half Life Two. Uh, so, Darren, I know. That you undertook the uh, another achievement dash trophy dash oh, t- steam achievement the three hundred and thirty three larval grubs. Yeah, it should be six hundred and sixty six because that achievement was the devil. Oh god! <laughs> like I, I, I've tried it before and on the PC because I played episode two so many times. I sort of I thought I knew everything about it and I thought you know what? There's one achievement on the Xbox I haven't got and because I love. Half-Life 2 so much, I, I kind of feel like it's one of the games that I want to get achievements for. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to undertake this. And um, unfortunately, Gemma was there at the time of me, and I was like, I'm going to do this achievement. And she watched, and she was just as bored as I was by the end of it. Because <laughs> if you miss one, if you fall down a, an edge and you can't get back up, you have to reload. And I was I was following a guide, and it's like, right, 269, it'll be on a bar <laughs> oh, when you go down a train, and you're like, oh, this but is so ridiculous. You're absolutely right, Darren, because what you need to have is not just that guide, but you need to know at key points where you reach, you know, different parts of the tunnels or different parts of the story, mm. particularly when you get to the Vortigaunts. You, but you've got checklists of, I need to have this many have by this point. Have you done it too, James? I did it first playthrough. <laughs> with a guide because it's, there's not a lot of story going on at the moment there's not a lot of spoilers so actually you can have a guide that just says I mean literally it is by the time you get to this point yeah, yeah. down this ramp you need to have this number and so yep. you're constantly coming out to your menu to check how many you've got um, I'm pretty sure you can see it on the menu can't you Darren? Yeah well yeah, yeah. the um, the achievements have like a tracker system in the pause menu Yeah it yeah. pops up um, every two, every 111 <laughs> Yeah, which isn't frequent not... enough for my liking. It's like, no. have I got them? Oh, 111? There we go. It's obviously 33% of your way yeah. through. Um, it's more annoying than the Gnome Chomsky achievement, which I also achieved. I thought the Gnome was all right, but um, well, no, this one's just... I mean, there's... 
There's nothing because yeah, at least the gnome one, there's something fun and there's a bit of payoff at the end. Valve were taking the piss out of the like the GTA pigeons and the Assassin's Creed flags, or but were no they just being? For it. That's the problem. If they're taking the piss, there's there's no, no, there's no point at which they say to you, "This is ridiculous, isn't it?" It's actually just no. Go and find all three hundred and thirty-three. Really weird. Yeah, really. And weird most question. of the other achievements in the Orange Box games have been so well thought really out. Really well thought out. Yeah. Yeah. And or, and funny or amusing or things that you or want at to least try with or... the the sort of um, the ammo caches and in, in, in Half Life Two you get mm. something for them yeah because you get ammo and and you see bits of surprise. the levels that you yeah. might never otherwise see as well Absolutely, yeah. whereas in this you're you're going through these tunnels and I have to say in both the sections that you end up in these antlion tunnels I think this looks amazing it's, yeah. it, it's so beautifully done the from the stalactites and the stalagmites in the water and the the glowing of these grubs and they make a deliciously Um, satisfying sound when you pop them and and Um, you get a little bit of health for doing it as well which is no bad thing but yeah Yeah. the 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 webbing and going through the really tight corridor when you've got the guardian after you is really it really feels as confined as it looks and it looks too small to get into it's like a sort of uh it's 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 a nice uh, mashup of the the alien queen's hive in aliens and mm. shelob's lair in uh yeah. in lord of the rings it feels like a, an anthill is what it feels like you know when you see yeah. the cross section of an anthill with all these tunnels and really intricate uh, passageways it feels like that and and you're gordon freeman sort of scrambling through them mm. uh it feels really icky in a good yeah. way. Yeah, uh, yeah. There are these little. You end up in these little mini sections that are completely coated in this sort of iridescent webbing, and there's blood all over the floor where they've been feasting and stuff. It's yeah. uh, it's really nicely done. I mean, the the one payoff you do get for, uh, and you don't get it if you happen to be trying to, to um, to get this achievement, but you get a nice comment when you when you reach the the two guys and who are in this. Um, uh, it, well, it's an elevator shaft, uh, sort yeah. of a, a hub, uh, and the two guys there say, "Oh, it'll be okay. The ant lines aren't usually <laughs> yeah. bothered unless you happen to have disturbed any of their grubs. You didn't stand on any on the way over here, did you?" Or yeah, you've effect. like killed two hundred at this. Point, at that yeah. point, you've got about two hundred. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is the point where you do find uh, the 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 previous Vortigaunt with Alex uh, lying in a very poor state on a table as the Vortigaunt tries to yeah. to heal. Um, and uh, this is another Aliens-inspired section where... Oh, Aliens Special Edition, if you're mm-hmm. counting, if you still know the difference, um, where tunnels of antlions uh, with a, a light and alarm system, you have two AI chums who are kind of a comedy double act. <laughs> uh, you have loads of hopper mines and ammo and a couple of turrets. And, so, yeah, uh, you've got two turrets, two AI partners, yourself, some mines, and four tunnels to cover. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it's. I, I thought this was more fun than the train station bit in episode one. Yeah, yeah. but it's yeah, still yeah. not my favourite bit. Again, it goes on a little bit too long, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah at least this time though, they it goes on a little bit too long. Like they could have cut it off one, one more. But it, mm. having it go a little bit too long, it does make it feel like an epic struggle. So yeah, it, yeah. there is a there is a reward for getting that extra one done because you're like, oh, thank God that's done in, in a good way, as opposed yeah. to the train bit where you're just like, oh, thank God that's done. Well, so the final, especially given that the final one is is it all four tunnels on three reds alert. with the vortigaunts and yeah, then and then pair. just as you think that's it we're done we're dead because by that point generally one of your turrets has probably gone at least if not both 
um, and your two guys can kind of hold one tunnel on their own with two or maybe three lights but other than that you're kind of screwed and uh, yeah you've got three lights going off on on each tunnel and that's when you get the vortigaunts come in so it, it kind of does pay off because you feel like you've struggled as far as you could go and then just then sort of um, the vortigaunts came to your rescue which really reinforces how important and how great they are in combat actually yeah i mean that's that's another rather like those the dog moments where mm. dog kicks ass uh the vortigaunts kicking ass is is extremely entertaining and, and pretty much that last sweep you don't really get to kill much because the vortigaunts are just taking them all out with this sort of lightning the, the very stuff that they fired at you in in half-life one um is it actually possible here to do so badly that alex dies or anyone know if there's a fail state oh. to this I don't know. I was never got there if there is. Yeah, too busy fighting to survive. Certainly the Antlions can get into the hub and start they making do, yeah. their way around it, but I've never actually seen them attacking the middle table because at that point Alex is on there um, with one Vortigaunt next to her. Because but... it's set up like the Vortigaunt saying, uh, I mustn't be disturbed, otherwise yeah. Alex, you know, Alex is in grave danger sort of thing. She, mm. He says she exists in the margins or something like that. It would like seem that. like a bit of an oversight if if that couldn't happen. Because otherwise, if if you just stand still and make sure that you're healing yourself, for instance, mm. would the two AI guys just mop up any ant lions as they were running around the place? And are they works? invincible? Because uh, I mean, they, there's a little, you know, there's a comedy payoff with those two, so I assume yeah. they can't die either. Mm. Well, the thing with me is that I soon realised that the best place to put the turrets was either side of that table yeah. and not by the doorways, mm -hmm. and I just stayed in the lower level and waited for the antlions to come for me. So it never really was an issue. Hmm. So, no. But the implication is there, so that's kind of all that matters. Mm -hmm. Gaming smoke and mirrors again, really. Uh, so eventually, uh, you see off all the antlions of Autogons uh, club together, <laughs> pull their power along with you. You join with them. Uh, not quite yet. Oh, not oh, quite yet. No, first thing that happens is um, three of the Vortigaunts take. Uh, oh, we haven't got the essence yet. Sorry, and, yeah. And you and mm. another Vortigaunt go off and, and look for uh, the That's vor right. Vortessence. Oh no, big pardon, not the Vortessence. The um, sort of yeah, fuel for the Vortessence, the larval extract. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you go off back into the yeah. into the into the nest with Which the is when you're chased by the guardian because again through comedy of Gordon's pratfalling yeah. you end up uh, separated. <laughs> um but they stress you mustn't kill it and I assume you actually yeah. can't at this point. I don't know if it doesn't let you it oh, always yeah. it's there's a sort of lot of scripted sections where it runs up to you and um, bashes through a wall at you and come runs past a tunnel at you. It can kill you I think but yeah, I don't think, I think you can kill it. I think the way they dissuade you is by having its charge attack be so devastating that you, yeah. I don't think you literally have the room and the ability to be able to unload enough onto it to kill it before it would kill you, I think. Maybe there is a way, um, but whether it whether it's mission critical, you know, mm. fail state, I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, uh, then the, um, the Vortigaunt gets ever so excited about the delicious, <laughs> stinky essence that he's <laughs> he's got. Uh, they do come back and heal Alex uh, with Gordon joining in. And at this point, the G-Man butts in. While the Vortigaunt are distracted and using their energy not to dissuade him from interfering, he pops in and sows a sort of mental seed 
as regards to the phrase uh, "prepare for unforeseen consequences." Yeah, he puts a, essentially he puts a trigger in Alex, and and when she next sees her father, she will have to relay the message you've just given mm. early on. And that that harkens back to Half Life One, which you find out in Episode Two that G Man and um, Eli Vance had had a little conversation before yeah, that's right. the Resonance Cascade kicked off. Mm. It was the G Man who, in fact, delivered the very crystal. That enabled the resonance cascade experiment to take place. Can I just say I really like the way that this scene is set up with the G-Man, just with the um, the image of him, uh, you know, in the background while mm. he's at an office desk as well, and uh, flashing to all these scenes of people being shot, and then going uh, all the way to White Forest and seeing him by the rocket. I just thought it was really cleverly put together yeah. and plus um the uh the the writing and the line delivery there is excellent once again agreed yeah absolutely yeah. i i um yeah i've got to agree it, it's at this point you start to realize that the g-man's had much more influence than just because certainly for me up to this point you obviously know that the g-man pulled you out of black mesa and and preserved you somewhat to be brought back at a time of his choosing to do, uh, not necessarily to do his bidding, but certainly to be a sort of spanner in the works of whatever he was, or, or a spanner in the works of whatever uh, his plans were. That's not quite right, but you know what I mean. Um, and and it's a at this cog point, in his machine, yeah, yeah. but not or necessarily a, a directed one because he doesn't have direct control over your actions, but he seems yeah. to choose when to unleash. Mm. Uh, Gordon upon the world or when Gordon is most needed and to a certain extent that kind of seems like he's doing a good thing because all the stuff Gordon's able to do is to the benefit of um, well to the benefit of of mankind Um, but now you start to realise that the Vortigaunts clearly are helping you in on your side now against the Combine and he's seeing them as adversaries so he becomes much more of almost a Machiavellian type figure at this stage and and you yeah. really start to realise some of the plotting and planning and the the machinations behind what he is up to, uh, especially by the end of the episode. Uh, obviously, because a lot more about his interference is become comes to light. Although his motives are still as as unknown as ever. Continuing towards White Forest and this rocket and Eli, uh, they see Alex and Gordon see the combine on the march with the advisors. Um, they are told of uh, the availability, possibly, of a another uh, rick- rickety but souped-up car. It's like a Dodge Charger sitting halfway across a, a semi-wrecked bridge. There's a puzzle here where you have to actually get uh, an entire bridge to teeter uh, and then do a, a stunt jump in a car, which is pretty cool. It kind of it reminds me of a typical Half-Life Two puzzle where if it's not plugging something in, it's balancing stuff to make yes, another yeah, thing go absolutely. up with your heads. But I don't know how they get away with it every time. You're just like, okay, plug something in. Yeah, um, I've done that before about five, six times already, but it doesn't matter. I just do it again. And then here, like you, in Half-Life Two, when you're in the canals, you have to you're see saw the, the ramp plank yeah, of wood. Yeah, yeah, and this is just like this is just a big version of that. And you're just but like, I think uh, it's because it's so big, and because looking at it, it's only once you start working it out that all it is is a seesaw. Saw, mm. but it's it's an entire section of bridge or you know concrete and metal yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. It, it's quite impressive to be able to do that sort of thing 
just having sat down and worked it out and you're right they've trained you to know what to expect from this puzzle time and time again and you but so you never really feel stuck on the puzzle you know what you've got to do but it still seems somehow impressive doing it um did yeah did really. anyone else get the fail state where you knock all the cars off and you can't you can't balance it no <laughs> yeah that happened to me oh i did <laughs> knock all the cars off but it Worked. Yeah, um, no, same here. I knocked all the cars off and it still worked. Oh, this maybe probably, they fixed it. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say patch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I definitely remember knocking all the cars off by accident and you get the traditional black screen of like, yeah. you know, subjects. Now you come blah, to mention blah, blah. it, I remember getting that on the 360 version back in 2007, mm-hmm. but no, I just fired all the cars off to, uh, today, forgetting how it worked. I was thinking, isn't this a giant seesaw? Oh, well, I'll just fire all the cars off and see what happens. And. Yeah. There was a kind of pause, and then it kind of sunk into place. So I guess, yeah, there's some sort of they Make, made a makes sense because at, at that point it is kind of a, a bit shattering to to have done perhaps what you thought was right, uh, yeah. and then just be told no, start again. Um, the one thing I had was I, I ended up getting cars sort of jammed around the one that I needed because um, <laughs> I'd hopped over the first bit, and I had to really carefully sort of use the gravity gun to try and extract it without knocking it off the bridge i don't know if that's actually possible it might not be but um it certainly felt um precarious at the time so uh yeah just talking about those puzzles and the fact that they sort of do recycle a lot of puzzles and i suppose you know um all games recycle a lot of puzzles and Hmm. and harking back again to that uh you know is find the key for the the door um half-life Valve makes makes these interesting by making the rooms different shapes and sizes and, and subtle tweaks within the overall puzzle. But I have to say, I still absolutely love that very simple puzzle with the two plug leads, where one of the leads is too short. The, <laughs> and inevitably, you always, always cause do it. Because yeah. there's a bit of the puzzle you can solve. You yeah. plug it in straight away, and then you get to the other side, and you think... Totally. Oh. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I've completed that before, and I was like, you know, it was five years ago. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this puzzle, but I couldn't remember. There's something about two plugs okay well, i plug the pl- and then ah and that doesn't reach and then you know they know so alex, alex says oh brilliant yeah. you got the power on and then you go power's oh shit off. i'm gonna have to yeah now it's gone off <laughs> so it's gone on again it's gone off it's gone off. yeah uh just yeah. that's so cool uh on your way up north uh you pass a building and you get the migraine effect uh indicating that a an advisor is nearby and you find an advisor in a basement. You try to kill it, but instead you awaken it. Uh, it's quite creepy, this section. Very, yeah. Uh, again, control is taken away from you um, as it looks like. Uh, you see there's there's a dead body of a friendly already down there, and you yeah. see the advisor do its proboscis um, plunging into brain thing, alien style. Yeah and you're just about to do it to it's just about to do the same to alex when um the the fact that you've disconnected its life support has enough of an effect to to get rid of it yeah this the sequence where you're obviously driving in your new spangly sort of roadster car it <laughs> it reminds me um of 
um, Highway 17 where you're you're cruising mm-hmm. along roads and you just you know you, you stop because there's an interesting house that has potentially some sort of emergent gameplay slash story in there. Mm-hmm. Like you go in there because you feel like you need to go in there. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with this. You sort of oh, there's a fence stopping you from going any further because mm-hmm. you eventually get attacked by the combine. But you want to go in these buildings because they they add so much to the world. And you're like yeah let's go let's go in here and have a little have a little run around. And just before that you do see a crashed combine pod. And if you get out. They say, "Oh, there's one of those pods that uh, you know hold the com- uh, the advisors, so you know there's yeah. one nearby." And but you still want to check out all these buildings and the houses because there's stuff in them that you need. Yeah, it's weird that you mentioned there is a fence because I didn't notice that the first time I mm. played it because it's I'd been programmed to automatically stop yeah. going mm. uh, go and explore a building yeah, of course. because there's always something interesting inside of. Them. I think that's yeah. the thing I would say is that. Almost, well, certainly in episode two, there is always a need where there are a set of houses for you to get out of the car yeah. and go into yeah. the building. And actually, there's almost always a need to go into each of the buildings. It's just you don't necessarily realise it. So it feels like you're walking into a building exploring um, and you happen to trigger, say, two hunters coming for you or or uh, in, in this case, you go down to the basement. It just feels like you've casually walked in there and you didn't need to. But actually you did and that's part of the trick of game with it being linear but not feeling that way it does feel like it's you that's decided to go and do that even though actually there was a fence there and actually you couldn't get the gate to open unless you did go into the building they needed you to go into so i think yeah it's it, it's just cleverly thought out in terms of because oftentimes it's right i've got to go into this building and flip that switch i've got to go into another building and, and then flip another switch but it's all disguised well i think in this at uh another safe haven somewhere along the way after some of these uh combine attacks uh the car is kaput it needs fixing up um meanwhile you have a little you're given a little side mission which is completely uh, obligatory which yeah. is to go and take out uh an auto gun yeah. uh it's quite a fun little diversion yeah, very much of like a like in the trenches moment. It's sort of like a World War Two feeling of just like keep your head down because it's going to get blown off at any second, mm. and just work your way around the back and uh, yeah, sneak in and take out the auto gun. Like, it's quite satisfying that bit because you end up throwing a grenade yeah. behind this sheet of metal that blows open a hole in the wall, and that's so satisfying. Just just a little simple function yeah. of just throwing a grenade behind a sheet of metal. Just yeah, I love blow. the bit where you there's there's an infinite grenade cache just before you get there, and you <laughs> can um, you get to shower the place the the building that you're about to go in that you know is full of combine with grenades and that's that's good fun too. chuck them through the windows always enjoyable again that's another really good example because going through those trenches it feels like you've got options of which way you go but i suppose you do to a certain extent but you kind of don't you've kind of got to follow the path they want to take and you've got to go past the turret at the beginning and therefore you have to knock that down and then you've got to get to that building and sneak through it and come out on the next sort of run um and again, with that grenade, it's a really good example of when I approached it, it didn't seem obvious what I had to do, but it kind of is. And so it feels like you've discovered that solution to throw a grenade in. But as you say, there's an infinite grenade cache there. Ultimately, there's no other switches or anything else you can press. All you've really got is grenades and lots of them. So it kind of makes sense that you're going to have to toss a grenade at it. Yeah. And, but it feels like you improvised 
One of the things I found really entertaining in this sequence was that the the uh, uh, zombies had kind of become comic relief during this scene <laughs> because they're all just wandering about this World War II like trenches scenario, completely oblivious to the fact there's this giant autogun just mowing them mm. down and just watching all these guys suddenly go, oh, and then they're dragging themselves across the floor. Yeah. It's like, oh, what the hell just happened? <laughs> it was quite funny. There is a great bit where you where you first crawl into the tunnel to go in there and uh, a flaming one of the poisonous head crabs just comes through the tunnel straight at you, fills the entire screen. Yeah, Proper twitch and shoot, hit the shotgun. Yeah, you're you're right, Josh. This section almost feels like Day of the Dead, something like that, where this sort of military installation have this incredibly elaborate obstacle course for the zombies to take, but ultimately they're going to die at the end because there's a, a bleeding great cannon opening up on them. But nonetheless, it feels just like they're having fun with them almost. Um, but it's a it's a real change in pace because through episode one and obviously um, Ravenholm in in um, Half Life Two, you've kind of learned to be very scared of these groups of zombies, and yet now, after seeing the hunters and after meeting the advisor, they feel so far removed from anything that's a threat to what you're trying to do anymore. Um, that it's almost nice to have this sequence and then the sequence in the car immediately afterwards where you've got an achievement to run over as many of these zombies as you can. Knowing um, them down. Yeah, so you literally are just spotting them and it's it's almost like spot them and then just sort of lean a little to the left to make sure you take them out, you know? Yeah. So yeah, the car's been, uh, when you get back from this job, uh, straight back across where you came, which is always fun, Um <laughs> you find that they've added a little radar to your car and there's these five Lambda caches, um, which are, are sort of fairly much along the way. Um, and but there's some quite, there's each has a puzzle to getting it. So there's one where you have to put a grenade under a, um, under a big metal flap on the floor. There's another where it's actually hidden beneath the floorboards of a place that the, the clue is that when you drop onto the floor, it cracks slightly. Um, so little things like that. Uh, she, I think um, Alex kind of insists that you go for them, doesn't she? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as you're cruising past, she's like, oh, the radar's... Because you get a new TV screen on your uh, car right. yeah. that blips every yeah. time you go near one of these, uh, like, Lambda... Um, Caches, yeah. Supply, de- yeah, supply depots type things. And it's sort of... The, the puzzle required to get the, the reward scales for me because that that one with the metal sheet that you had to put the grenade under to propel you up to Mm. press the button that's like the hardest puzzle for me and you get a rocket launcher as a reward Mm -hmm. whereas the one where you lift up the planks is just like oh i just have some flares and grenades and stuff that's fine but yeah the the actual one that tasked me the most was the one with the biggest reward and that makes perfect sense because alex then says oh you've got a rocket launcher that's that's awesome and stuff like that yeah i've got to say alex alex might insist but and first time i went through again there's an achievement but in mm. this case, I think the achievement points you in the direction of doing something that, as with the the um, caches in in Half Life Two, you're getting something for, so it doesn't feel too bad. But she may have insisted. But second time round, I was running through for story purely, and just as a reminder, drove past them all. Didn't care. Didn't stop. Right. No interest and <laughs> no consequence. So they are entirely optional. So hang on, um, you played for the single bullet achievement. Yeah. On. Uh, uh, and first time through, I played for all the achievements. Second time through, I played through oh, okay, just a right. couple of weeks back on PC, uh, and just blew through the story. Oh, okay. Um, uh, by yeah. this point, you already have known 
Chomsky, don't you? Oh. Well, yeah, at, let's, at this let's point, he's not Noam that. Chomsky. Actually, is he's just he's just the Noam. The Noam, Noam Chomsky's yeah. a left for dead. Term. Yeah, it was yeah, yeah. became Noam Chomsky. So, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, the, the, this is the infamous achievement. So uh, you pick up this. Yeah, gnome. it's it's in a communications room where you're contacting um, White Forest at the start of the game. Very near the start of the game, yeah. And yeah. you just happen to. You wouldn't notice it, to be honest, unless you knew that it was there, um, really. Just under the stairs in a box, I think it is, isn't it? Or is yeah. it on a shelf in a box? Um, it's under. It's on the in a corner of the hut, underneath yeah. like a shelf type mm-hmm. area. Yeah. It's yeah. it's just before you meet the hunters for the first time. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, garden gnome. Uh, looks like a yep. garden gnome. Typical garden gnome. Looks like Santa, but a bit more green than red. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you've got the gravity gun, or you can just pick him up, but you have to carry him for the rest of the game. Yeah. Simple as that. The, yeah, the difficulty so comes where obviously while you're carrying him, you can't use weapons and while you're, well, you can't carry him and drive for instance and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so I gather the, the hardest part about this, and I think they've even done some, some tweaks as regards to the gnomes behavior. I understand when the game was first out, it was extremely difficult to persuade the gnome to stay in the Dodge Charger yeah. car. Yeah, it, uh, was, it was physics overload for me. It was just bobbing around in the seat yeah. and it was just like, fly out and you're like, where'd it go? And it, then... it wasn't extremely <laughs> difficult. It was impossible. You could ju- you see, There was a sort of couple of places you could try and wedge it in, but it was just a case of... I mean, in the helicopter sequence that we're basically coming up to in the story pretty much now, you're going down train tracks you were kind of what you had to do was hop out the car fire him with the gravity gun as far as you could yeah. fire him but make sure you keep an eye on him hop back in the car drive to where he was hop back out and do that all the while you've got the um the helicopter shooting down on you it's incredibly frustrating mm. But yeah, kind of satisfying at the end. Yeah, I did it in the end. It was yeah. it was so much more rewarding for to you know to see him in the little space rocket spaceship that the missile. I don't know what it is. It's, it's a, a rocket. rocket yeah, you yeah, have, yeah, yeah. You have to put him in the cone of the the, the rocket little hatch where Heady the head Lamar the head crab mm. uh, also climbs, and they actually they uh, there's a little conversation between Magnuson and uh, Kleiner later saying it appears to be about eight and a half pounds too heavy (laughs) they're obviously talking about his pet head crap Uh, remind me Darren just quickly the section where you have to go and get the car and also the section where you have to go and um, disable that um, automatic turret there are there are places you can leave him aren't there those two points you can leave him next to Alex and pick him back up afterwards can't you is that right yeah, because you end up coming back on yourself you when you're getting yourself the enough. car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the bit where you're, when the guy's fixing your car, you do the auto turret as we mentioned yeah. in the trenches. You come back and you you can leave him just out, just where the car is, and then yeah, you, yeah. on a shelf, and you pick him back up, and hopefully yeah. he doesn't fly out of your car as you're zooming down <laughs> White Forest. It is mental. Like I'm never doing it again, but I'm sort of glad I did. Yes, same here. I think, un- unlike the grubs, that it does feel like enough of a silly achievement to, mm. to warrant having done it. But, yeah, and then to do a similar thing in Left 4 Dead 2, where you're, you have to carry the gnome into yeah. the helicopter. That at the one end of I did. That, that one I did manage. You, it's uh, Dark Carnival. Is that the name? Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can win the gnome as a prize, I think, can you? 
Yeah, at one of the games, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, just prior to depositing the gnome in the nose cone of the rocket, uh, back on the road, this is where you have a dog hero moment where uh, he takes down a strider, which is fucking awesome. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Uh, you, not that you forget about dog, but you sort of... It's, you don't you don't you miss him but you don't realise he's gone it's weird how they yeah. do it because he disappears in episode one and you don't see him until now am I right and yeah, yeah. He, he he just comes out of nowhere and you're like oh god dog where have you been like it's not that you've forgotten about him but you've been so preoccupied with yeah. everything else that mm. when he comes back you're like oh my god he's going to do something amazing again and yeah. Yeah, he does I think that battle is even more impressive simply because you're in that moment it's not a cut scene you're watching it in the first person uh, perspective yeah. and it, it gives a sense of being like a war reporter on the scene <laughs> of a battle scene if you know what I mean it, it makes you feel a lot more a part of that moment there's a bit of trickery with this because that stalker sort of looks like it's going to stand up am I right in saying that because it's, it's sort of like a big heap on the on, in the water and it sort of looks like it's going to get up and attack you and then you realize it's it's dog behind there and let's say um, um there's a drop ship isn't there one of the crab like uh, crustacean like dropships right, that he has yeah. to actually haul out the roads to get which is the gate to that area uh you know to make sure that you stay there and watch dog ripping the carapace off a strider uh and then that's when alex says i'll we'll race you to white forest which is actually inc- i found today i was like oh here we go this this bit is quite tricky and it was about it's about 13 seconds long or something it's absolutely <laughs> yeah. tiny that's it's weird i found that as well first time i did it um I was again. I knew there was an achievement, so I, I it felt much, much longer first yeah. time around, and much trickier. And second time around, I was just like, "Well, I've got the boost on the car now. Yeah, yeah. I know where I'm going, and handling the car is not too bad." I don't know if the difference was that second time around I was on PC as opposed to first time I was on 360. Maybe I was but, playing with a 360 controller today, yeah. and it, I think it's just knowing where you're going makes all the difference. Possibly, but yeah. it's just a fun little, just fun little distraction. Yeah. Um, and and quite a light. Thing to be doing because obviously you've you've come sort of over the blockage in the road and and sort of at that point I don't know about you guys you may have picked up the last lambda cache and had a rocket launcher but mm. I, I was stood there quickly cycled through my we- weapons to try and work out what I had to take the the strider down and of yeah. course dog more than ably does it for you so I'm pretty um, sure you can't take that no, strider down because no, uh, unfortunately it's the set piece for dog to, to yeah. come in and it's his cutscene if you like but as as we've said, in it feels like you're under threat because it's not a cutscene. You're mm. still in control and you're there and you feel vulnerable. But yeah, it's nice to have the sort of reunion with Dog and, and the sort of race back up the hill as a nice sort of light welcome back to White Forest. You've made it um, before, obviously, the siege sets in. So uh, when you arrive at White Forest, you meet this uh, Dr. Magnuson, who's a pompous, arrogant, antisocial ass. Um, but I was thinking <laughs> yeah. about this after I finished playing it, and actually, um, he does. Once the rocket's up, uh, he where well, he thanks you for protecting his rocket. The 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 uh, White Forest gets breached. This is a whole gameplay section of of combat where you're actually fighting away. Uh, through White Forest and it's been invaded by hunters and combine troops and so on um, and in the end Magnuson actually is, is grateful and he's just uh, he's like a you know giddy as a schoolboy when his rocket goes up and I was thinking about this long you know a couple of hours after I'd finished playing it and just thinking that if anything his his sort of arsiness his 
he was he had the pressure he had so much pressure on him he he was trying to get this rocket up in the sky and like you're Gordon Freeman now you've always got this much pressure on it but you're a mute so you can't possibly express it so whenever Magnuson's kind of seeing Eli and uh, Alex sitting down together or having a hug and he's like oh I didn't realise this was time for tea some of us have got more important <laughs> things to be getting on with and I was thinking god you fucking git and then afterwards I realised that actually he had the weight the very weight of humanity on his shoulders because if his rocket had failed then it all was lost, all was for naught. And he was quite kind of like able to express what Freeman never is, which is, for fuck's sake, everyone! Yeah. Do I have to do all of this myself? On yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, no, there, it's, there's a certain... I agree, but the problem is that he comes off as, to a certain extent, despite the fact he's not self-serving, he comes across as quite narcissistic, where <laughs> no matter how much help he's getting from people around him, yeah. he still is the one proclaiming he his He's own. still a bit of a git, but I had... I think there are mitigating circumstances. I I think he's an arsehole, but he's a good arsehole. Oh, yeah, he's an entertaining yeah. he, he's arsehole. He's no Dr. Breen or anything, yeah. But yeah, yeah. He's He's got that streak of ego that, I mean, to a certain extent, people at the top of their field in science tend to have that because they've kind of had to fight their way to get there and they have to make a lot of noise about their successes and what they do because, frankly, there's a lot of people doing a lot of different work that's worthy, and you have to shout about your own, otherwise people kind of ignore it. And um, and he's literally a rocket scientist. You know, yeah, that's, he is. Yeah, that is not easy. What uh, he's doing is amazing. The problem is he keeps telling everyone that he's amazing and, <laughs> and sort of chiding them and, and, you know, digging at them for not being as amazing, which makes him instantly unlikely. And as regards to these Magnuson devices, he sort of says, uh, it's not something that I would have chosen to call them, but uh, yeah. it seems to please the team. So it's I like, think that's you, you the like he's, he's He's clearly egotistical, but he's also got this streak of wanting to appear humble which he clearly yeah. isn't in any stretch of the imagination yeah. so he clearly cares what other people think but also doesn't want to admit it which is kind of shallow this is actually the sort of the the last bit of quiet before the the, the final the storm of the final set pieces um after the breach which is where uh eli once again tries to talk to you about his relationship with the G-Man and that he knows that you know him and he knows you and vice versa. Uh, it's also the point where Alex says to prepare for unforeseen consequences, which seems to take something out of both Alex and her father. Well, she almost awakens from the the trance that the G-Man had to put her in to make her say yeah. those words. Um, mm. And that that's what prompts Eli to, to want to have a, a word with with you so he sends Alex away and and you that's the what I was saying earlier that's when you realize that the the G-man's not only pulling strings around you he's pulling strings around Eli as well and Alex and clearly has and and as we've said he clearly has been involved right from the beginning in setting these events in motion yeah and so his motives really i mean that's almost more than anything else that's what drives people to want sequels and more story as much as they do, I think. Yeah, the mystery. What's the meaning of all of this? Hopefully it will have a payoff, unlike, you know, certain long-running TV series that <laughs> never never paid off with what they promised. Uh, I, I don't know. I kind of like 
the G-Man to remain a mystery. Maybe his um, intentions, his objectives, I'd mm. like some explanation. But I think the mystery of the G-Man is more interesting than any yeah. solid answers that they could give That's us. often true in stories, isn't it? The, the, much, yeah. the, the solution is, you know, the actual answer is so much less interesting than the mystery. It's like life, really. Well, like Gordon Freeman's voice, we said earlier, any voice they could give Gordon Freeman's not going to live up. So... Hey, hey, Alex, let's what go kill that? some cum. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, so, you could yeah. do that. <laughs> I couldn't That'd have hurt. <laughs> I love it if he was just, oh, no, no, let's not even no. think about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, when they mentioned the Half-Life film, I was just like, oh, don't let it be about Gordon Freeman, because... Tom was... Cruise is Gordon Freeman. Oh, God. It'd just be the worst, wouldn't it? With a bad beard. Um, so, uh, Striders are coming, and this obviously jeopardises the launch of the rocket, which is essential to close the portal. Um, oh, this is this has also been the point where we've learned about uh, Mossman and the Borealis. Uh, Kleiner, I don't. It's, it's it's not actually explained what the Borealis is, other than it's Aperture Science's thing. Um, Kleiner wants to utilise it for something, whereas Eli insists that it must be destroyed. Don't they mention it's a, it's a boat, but it's supposed to be kind of a mobile research. Yeah, design. they mentioned that much at least. But what is it that? Yeah, what are they researching? What what's well, its yeah. value? Yeah. Ha- having played Portal One and Portal Two, <laughs> yes. I can imagine what's on that ship, and I can understand why Eli might say, "Let's just destroy." I it. think what makes it so appealing is that this ship. They say that it just disappeared, didn't they? Yeah, but, and in yeah, fact, if yeah. you go to the, you can go to the hangar in Portal Two. In Portal Two, but the implication, yeah. or certainly what I took from the it, dock. is almost Bermuda Triangle style. That it wasn't just that it disappeared, as in we lost track of it. It literally disappeared. Like whatever's <laughs> going on on this ship is powerful enough to be able to pull it out of you know almost existence and that kind of thing. So, are whatever. you suggesting that it may be Josh and James that it, this may be Portal technology that? Is this is the big crossover between the games? <laughs> is that in fact the Borealis disappeared because of portal technology, i.e., it went through one portal and came out on the moon or something like at the end of Portal Two? Spoiler, sorry. Uh, <laughs> or is it's... it is is it the you know the idea that if if the combine had that that Aperture Sciences portal technology, they wouldn't have to have these ridiculously complex, massive. Yeah. Uh, difficult to build citadels they could just fire you know fire a portal into a wall in in evil far space and fire another one at the earth and that's it they just walk through is that is that is that is well, that I, the I big think, half-life payoff i think what we're saying what we're probably saying is in a world where a gravity gun is considered amazing science but nonetheless it's you know it's not considered something that's going to turn the tide of this war the portal technology seems to have been Aperture Science's big secret. And so we're talking something of that magnitude that, yeah, the suspicion is that whatever's on it, a bit, having just watched Lord of the Rings, it's a bit like the One Ring where the good guys want to use it for their own means, but Mm. Eli obviously is wary of something that powerful. The power is too great. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. We will end up destroying ourselves, you know, that sort of thing. We'll talk about when we when we mm. shortly come to discuss about the future of Half Life. Whether we think that the Portal Half Life intertwine is is a good idea or something that we think is going to happen. Um, but we must just talk about the end of episode two. So there's this uh, divisive section uh, where you are back in the car 
And this is the closest to open world we've seen in Half-Life in that you are driving around a large area uh, defending a base via various outposts. There's cranes and a mill. Um, um, I think five outpost buildings to defend. I think. Yeah, now there's, there's an achievement for saving them all. <laughs> I've never managed this. Darren, you want to talk through that one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I tried it on my own. Right? I've never tried it and very seriously, but is it is it as tough as I think it might be? Yeah, yeah. It, it for me it required a guide because you need to know exactly where, where the from. stalkers are coming from. Because okay. th- there's a few quick ones that just totally breeze towards the building. Do. Yeah, they, they just totally like literally run for the building, and in, you're like, well, fact, where is it? Where is it? The very first one makes a beeline straight for the the mill. I think it the is. sawmill. Yeah, and it just goes right bang. If you goes. are not there immediately, so yeah, yeah. You, and you also need to make very, very extensive use of not just multiple saves, but saving every time you take a strider down, you save. Yeah. And, you, and that's the advice you gave to me, and I took it on wholeheartedly yeah. with a guide, with, with a video guide. And this guy's like, and you go left here. And I was like, yeah. well, I've got to save every time I kill one. It always saves when you kill one anyway, which it is helpful. Actually, yeah. But I did, a, I did a manual save just to make sure. So you've got these Magnuson devices, which we should quickly explain. Uh, they are <laughs> sticky bombs, which you... Fire at uh, Strider's hull. Um, if any of its accompanying hunters are still there, they will fleshette it off. So you have to take out all the hunters first. They'll uh, also blow it up when it's in your hands, or rather, on the end of your gravity yeah, right. gun as well. So, um, yeah. uh, but it only takes one pistol shot to actually blow this yeah. thing up, and it's instant uh, Strider death if it yeah. works. So if you're you also had a, a carrier attached to your car, and there are various uh, teleports to get these Magnuson devices from. Um, but it's a large area, and there are, as you say, five outposts to be defended. Um, yeah, the only one that really matters is the last one, which is the base. Yeah. Uh, and a and siren an goes extra, off. Yeah, extra warning when, in when that's. Yeah. Actually, you get an extra warning when they are still a long way away from the base. Yeah, I was um, shitting myself, but I. Yeah. Actually, there's plenty of time, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, that's the thing. There's plenty of time to do this. There's not plenty of time if you want to save every building. No. Um, there, there's also a, a little bit of an awkward tutorial section with the Magnuson device, mm. which, given what's going on, I know Doctor Magnuson wants to show off that he's designed this device, but wouldn't his time be spent better better spent on the rocket? And can't Gordon work out how to use a sticky bomb on his <laughs> yeah. own? Yeah, he's done well enough with like picking up rocket launchers and taking down helicopters so far. I was going like, to say firing firing those mines back at the the chopper uh, yeah. is really exactly the, training, the same. Well, especially <laughs> yeah. given there's an achievement for not missing with with putting on a clinic. Mines. Yeah. yeah, so mm. um, yeah, I just felt it it seemed a bit awkward to be having a tutorial at this late stage in the game. I know yeah. the reason why, but it just. I don't want to say shoehorn in because it was necessary almost, but yeah, it, it it just kind of broke the pace a little bit. There is one redeeming feature of this tutorial bit. I think he mentions that you need to apologise to him, and you're like, "Well, oh, what have I done?" And then he brings up the old microwave incident in Half Life. That was hilarious. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, you blew up my dinner, and cheers for that. I was like, "Oh my god, that was you!" Obviously, it wasn't him in Half Life One because all the models look the same, but yeah, yeah. in essence, it was actually him. Yeah, he he sort of says, um, "Yes, uh, if if you pull this off, I may be willing to forgive that certain little incident of Black Mesa." And you're like, "Oh yeah, shit, the resonance cascade." And he's like, uh, "Involving a certain microwave beef." Cut or so whatever. <laughs> casserole, yeah. casserole yeah brilliant yeah. brilliant superb um so uh i found this bit quite tense and exciting 
Uh, I quite enjoy it. Uh, I think it's quite epic. I like the, the cheering of the dudes. Uh, you've got this, uh, yeah, you've got a Magnuson device carrier on the back of your car. Um, I quite like the sort of free ranging um, strategy of it and the fact that it's deeply satisfying when you actually attach the Magnuson device to a Strider and pop it with a single bullet and the, the Strider goes everywhere with its legs akimbo and, and that's all very nice. But not everyone's a fan of this section. I think I'm a bit sort of marmite on it right now because I tried for that achievement in the recent <laughs> playthrough last week and I was a bit sort of like, oh, this bit's terrible. Yeah. And it, it is it is grand. It is epic. And it does, it has a great payoff, you know, like the the explosion of these strides, like you say. Um, It's just, it just fits in. Like I wasn't 100% excited with it, if you know what I mean. And, and that's weird to say because it is a battle. It is a true battle. But the car, I'm not. I'm never a fan of the controls of the car. I know they're divisive as well. And after playing Halo 4 for hours, and then with, with that control screen moving into Half Life, I was all over the place yeah, for a bit. And figures. Um, yeah, it's it. It's a really good idea, but it fits in for me, like I said, with the rest of the end of Half Life mm. things, where that it is so great. And then the end is the, the playing of the end, not the story, but the playing of the end of Half Life bits are always a bit like yeah, for me. What about? Josh and James. I really like this section um, for much the same reasons as you. I just, I like the process of, okay, now I have to quickly dispatch all the hunters and now I'm free to attack the strider. Uh, I never found it too frustrating because I knew exactly what I needed to do and it's not particularly hard to achieve that. Sure, it's, it's if you want to save all the facilities... Yes, it is very hard, but I'm, I've never been one for chasing achievements, so that was never an, is uh, an issue for me. James, fun or not fun for um, you? I, th I think in my case, the, the achievement was more about, well, as all achievements are, they set the achievement so you know it's possible, but it seems so far beyond possible that I just wanted to have a go and see if it was worth it or if it was doable. And yeah, I mean, you need all sorts of guides. You need to know where the strides are coming from. The, the difficulty, mm. I think, that with the driving, um, compared to using the Magnuson devices, which, despite the fact it seems quite tricky, on neither occasion, I don't think, did I ever really miss. You kind of... It's actually kind of quite easy to shoot the Magnuson device with a gravity gun and hit a strider. Yeah. And then it might take a couple of pops with a pistol um, to, to blow up, but it feels like an achievement. It feels like something you've really done well at. And to counteract that, you've got the driving, which it's easy to kind of get lost or, or kind of the wrong side of a rock that sends you um, in the wrong mm. direction. Um, and the other thing is that, hands down, the easiest way to take out the hunters is to drive at them hitting them on yeah. the other hand is yeah. really difficult yeah. and if you're not careful if you do try and get out the car and take them on first of all the strider's getting away from you and second of all you start running low on ammo that's actually going to do any damage to hunters um so there on that side of things it's a bit frustrating and and it feels like something that you just need to get through taking the hunters out in order to take the striders out so on the one hand you've got something that's deceptively easy and feels great when you do it and on the other hand you've got something that's deceptively hard and just kind of feels like you've got i mean it feels tense and it feels exciting but it just feels like killing the hunters is something you've got to do and not necessarily something you're you feel like you're re rewarded for almost i suppose um, the best way to take out a hunter of course is the alt fire on the 
combine yeah. AR2 Sing, single shot, rifle, but single shot. Yeah, you, but you only get a couple of those yeah. really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and the hunters. I mean, you can always kick it down to easy difficulty, but they don't take that much uh, ammunition. It's just when you're quickly cycling through weapons, trying to work out what you've still got ammo in mm. to be able to take them down. It. it um, I, I yeah. guess that's what the Marmite feeling that, that Darren's maybe talking about. Uh, no, I I thought it was certainly a, a superbly grand end. It feels, I mean, the Striders always feel like the uh, the tripods in War of the Worlds, but uh, in in this case, it feels, I mean, it feels like an invasion. Um, yeah. Because when you think it's over, there's more coming. Um, you know you've got to hold them off because, be it to save the buildings or be it to, to save the rocket, this is it. This is it. Feels like humanity's last stand. Desperate struggle. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. and you're kind of the one guy, and having, having the uh, the other members of the resistance cheer you on, really makes you feel a bit like in Halo when you get the soldiers sort of in awe of Master Chief. You feel like the one guy who's capable of doing this, uh, and I think to that side of things, I think the the this finale is is suitably grand and epic. So, success eventually, and the rocket launches, and the portal closes. Uh, again, Eli's last instruction is to destroy the Borealis. Alex has prepped a, a helicopter <laughs> for... I didn't know she could fly a helicopter, but apparently she can. Uh, to take you uh, all the way to... Well, where is it actually supposed to be? It's supposed to be in near the North Pole or something. The, the Borealis. Yeah, they definitely say Arctic yeah. area. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what sort of fuel tank that helicopter's got, but yeah, super future fuel tank. <laughs> They're only in Russia, though, aren't they? So well, I suppose, yeah, yeah mm. it depends. Um, and this is the cliffhanger that has been left with us for five years now. Um, just as you are about to bid farewell to Eli, you have to really bid farewell to Eli because. A combine advisor busts in through the window. Dog has just run off, sadly, because he may have been able to uh, save Eli. He does turn up just in time to save Alex and Gordon from the advisors. Um, but Eli is killed, and it's really sad. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those uh, spoilers that I'm still not 100% confident in talking about, because <laughs> it's just so... You don't expect it, for one. Like You just think, hey, happy end. And for me, I, I do enjoy it. It's weird to say, but I do enjoy a sad story that's done well. Mm-hmm. Like, like not, not everything has to be, you know, party poppers and hats and sweets and stuff. Like It is just genuinely like, I, you know, I've done all this, and this is my reward. Mm-hmm. And it's it plays at the... It plays at your, on your emotions. Like, you, uh, And it's just the way it's all audio melds in together and it just leaves you on a real a sour note but at the same time you know that the next episode is um is potentially <laughs> going to be amazing because you're about to head off to the the borealis it's... i think i think for me what was really emotionally affecting about that scene wasn't so much eli dying i care about eli but i don't know him as well as alex the reason why I felt emotional during that scene is watching Alex react to that. Yeah, of course. Her yeah. at- her attachment to that character is, you know, one of her integral character traits. And for her to lose that, you know, that rock in her life, it was, you know, devastating to see her mm. break down like that. I do, I do feel, I, I think that's the, the most important thing because you've spent 
way more hours with Alex over episodes one and two than you have with Eli across the games. But uh, I do, I did feel extremely fond of him. I think Robert yeah, Guillaume yeah. was such a brilliant choice because his voice is so rich and warm. Um, and, you know, the lines that he gets given, the, that relationship with Alex is quite well shown, quite well illustrated over the course of those games. So, um, yeah, I mean, in a way, you know, it's like it, it, it is an illustration of that idea that actually death is worse for the, the people who are left behind, you know, depending on your beliefs about the afterlife and whatever. But actually, yeah, it, you know... Presumably, Eli doesn't know too much about what happens to him in those, you know, there's this fairly brutal but fairly quick death, whereas Alex is left to cope with, you know, her mum's obviously gone a long time ago, she's got no family left, and um, yeah, there she is all alone, this, this character that you care about. Yeah, I think that's the thing through, especially episodes one and two, we've been talking about the fact that, that Gordon is is a blank slate, he is... You know, we don't see anything of his reactions to what's going on around him because they're supposed to be our reactions. Um, so a lot of the emotion of what you've been experiencing has been... You've been seeing Alex's emotional reactions. She, her emotional reaction has essentially been yours. Um, and in, at this point, that's exactly what's happened, is is that you've seen Alex just... And the, the, the way that that uh, character has acted through this scene is just phenomenal you feel it i mean you really feel like she i mean let's face it a, a character on a screen she's not a real person but it feels like she is she's experiencing not just the loss of her father but right in front of her eyes in the most terrific way you could imagine um it's really well done um and just such as a, a gut punch to to leave episode two on you know it feels like a cliffhanger that the episode one perhaps didn't quite maybe mm. nail as well as it should or at least in terms of our memory of it rather than what actually happened so yeah i I really feel like it's the final bits of this episode that make you attached to eli more than ever before sure, sure is that he said before or maybe we can get grandkids and stuff like that and alex mm. uh, looks all shy mm. but there's bits where he says i couldn't be proud if you're my own son and you're just like oh man what are you doing stop pulling my heartstrings <laughs> and like He's got some. He's got. He's got shared information with you, like very little. But he's you and he know about G-Man, and it's like, yeah, like we're like buddies in a club that know about G-Man, mm. and no one else does. Like you feel connection with him because because of these moments, and like he really opens himself up to you at the end. It's just like you know, mm. I'm so happy for like that you're with Alex and you protected her, and and then he and then anything and he dies, and you're just like you're so selfish. <laughs> what are you doing? That's, that's me you're hurting as well as Alex. Yeah, I, I really felt it, and the I think I was playing with subtitles on at the time, and when it fades to black, it just brackets the word sobbing, and you, when you see mm. Alex's shoulder, like. Like actual, when you cry, your shoulders go as well as mm. everything else. Like, you, like she's lent, she's sort of lent over, you know, the now deceased Eli, and it's just like she, her shoulders are bobbing up and down, and you genuinely feel like this digital polygon is is crying. It's mad. It's really well done. Yeah, um, yeah. I was actually going going into that that final scene. I was because it's you know it's been five years. I knew what was coming, but it was like kind of you almost like not wanting to get to the end because you know there's a sort you know element of dreading it you know I, I wanted to see it again to see the scene because you know I enjoy the drama and stuff but there's part of you 
you know, there's very few characters in the whole of gaming of which I do an awful lot who I would actually think, oh no, someone's actually going to die in a minute and someone's going to get really emotionally wounded by this and Alex is probably never going to be ever, the same ever again now because despite everything she's always been as well as being you know all the good qualities that she has of being strong and optimistic and stuff but also you know tender and sensitive when needs be she's she you wonder how much of this strength she gets from knowing that her really lovely super intelligent father is always there waiting for her you know is this gonna is this gonna fuck her up in a way that she'll no longer be the Alex that we've come to know and love sort of thing it's not pertinent to to this conversation really uh except for another reason that i think uh eli is such a great character is i mean essentially he's a disabled character mm. um i don't know if if this was mentioned during the um the half-life 2 discussion i can't quite remember and obviously it wasn't there no, but i don't i don't think I, I think you know it's a great it's a great thing in that he's a disabled character and it's, where not a big it's deal. never mentioned yeah. and we never mentioned it no <laughs> yeah it's uh, it's not a big deal. Um, it's not part of the story. It's not a, a crutch to make you sympathetic for him, and it certainly doesn't lend anything more to the sympathy you feel for well, Alex, no, I guess at this point. But but it's just it's great that he is this character, and he's and he as a character doesn't lean on the fact that he's disabled. He still gets by and does what he needs to do, and and we haven't seen much of him in episode one and episode two, but mostly through um, through. Um, video chats just you know well, key points but sorry yeah, sorry no, to no, sorry to make this personal mm. but um having a dad who's missing a leg himself um i know for a fact that people who lose a limb tend to not want to rely on people and become even more self-sufficient um obviously they can't do everything for themselves but they would rather you not try and do stuff mm. for them they'd rather do it themselves so the fact that eli never brings it up and is never and is never a big deal made out of it totally makes sense for me having lived with somebody who has a similar condition mm. yeah obviously because of the the one african-american scientist model that was in half-life one having two full limbs uh we're to assume that he lost the lower half of his left leg i think it's his left his left isn't it um at some point between half-life one and half-life two possibly during the seven hour war possibly at some stage after that grabbed by a whatever you know um but we don't know it's i, I don't think it's ever said on if there's an easter egg or if there's anything anywhere explaining it but it's just it tells you something about the world that you're playing in and and something about him as a character yeah. Our one bit of uh, specific correspondence regarding this part is Mike Leddy from the forum. As far as episodic games have come with the recent conclusion to The Walking Dead, I've felt that the Half-Life 2 episodes have set some strong standards. If anything, the first episode, perhaps not able to better the original game, at least reveals in its ability to keep the same standard. The final sections of Half-Life 2 were the weakest part of that experience, and in continuation I feel they reflected on the quality of this first episode. At the point it breaks away from the mould, it unfortunately fucks it up with an irritating escort mission. This made me much less enthused for the second episode. Looking back on it, I think the first episode is simply a rites of passage to episode 2, a game 
with which I've completed every achievement, yes, even the little rocket man, and will maintain to say is a high, is the highlight of the orange box. Wow, no mean feat. Uh, episode 2 strides well above anything previously seen in the Half-Life series. The Source engine updates pushed it back to the forefront of the graphics race, and cutscenes, set pieces and locations were so professionally handled you'd be excused for mistaking it as Half-Life 3. I'm sure that I'm one of many to say that the ending will keep me interested in a new Half-Life episode or even game, whether it arrives in a year or ten. So that inevitably brings us on to episode three, or Half-Life 3, or both, or neither, or let's just say... Just tell me, people, what would you, what do you want to see? Do you ex- what do you expect to see? And when do you expect to see it? Let's start with Darren. Well, recent news from Valve has led us to believe that there's a new Source engine, a, a proper evolution of the Source engine in in the works. Um, this, for me, is Valve's opportunity to make Half-Life 3 as a whole new thing and to wow people for the next generation of graphics and you know fidelity. Um, episode 3, for me, I've been waiting for it so long that I just can't see it ever happening. I think Half-Life 3 is the next thing that they're going to pop out. And it's one of those, when, when I completed Ocarina of Time, I was looking forward to the next Zelda game. And I sort of had these like weird sort of goals in my life. Like if I survive my life <laughs> until the next game of this, like Perfect Dark. I used to be like I, that about the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> and that's what I'm like with Half-Life. Like, if I can survive my life until Half-Life thing comes out next then i'm happy with my life do you know what i mean yeah, and, i know exactly um, what you mean i'd just like to qualify that that was before the phantom menace had been released not after okay <laughs> and after that you abolished that system yes yes never yes, did yes. it again so yeah um if it means i have to buy a whole new system to play half-life 3 mega edition on the pc or if it comes out as a console game uh you know the next playstation or xbox mm. Uh, I will. I will do so. Um, I've always bought Half-Life. I've always bought new systems for Half-Life. If you know what I mean, like Half-Life Two was announced, bought a new system. Half-Life came out. I played it around my mates. Bought a PC for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just seems to be like the the benchmark for for, for me anyway. Yeah, uh, that's true. Actually, I've, I've I've bought PCs to play the previous Half-Life games. So yeah, that could be my cue to get finally get yeah. an up-to-date machine. Um, so story-wise, do, do you want to see them, you know, do you want to see it carry on exactly where it left off? Do you want to see yeah. Gordon go to the Borealis? And, mm. you know, do you have any big story ideas as regards the continuing life of Freeman or the struggle with humanity and the Combine? Or, or could it go, you know, does it have to continue down that path? I think the way the episodes have been going, like, I know it's not another episode, but the way that they've linked... Literally Half-Life 2 to Episode 1 to Episode 2. They've all been... Like, there's not a minute gone by where you're you you know you, you're missing out. It'd be a shame to not start Half-Life 3 up with, you know, the the dead body of Eli mm. and the helicopter. Like, I'd like to see the helicopter... Like, Half-Life 1 had the tram. Imagine Half-Life 3 being the helicopter open uh, sequence. Sort flying. of like a similar... Yeah, similar sort of analogy, you know, and they could sort of play off of that. Um, but yeah... Um, I'd love to see, uh, uh, personally, I'd love to see, because Aperture Science logo is mentioned and seen in Absolutely, blatantly seen, yeah. Yeah, it's on a little cargo ship, a uh, little cargo container on the ship, so I'd love to see Portal technology come into Half-Life and how that, because Portal, 
as a game is not really that combat heavy. Sure, there's turrets that are firing at you and stuff like that. It's no, more it's about the puzzles. Yeah. yeah, but if you merge the combat of Half-Life with the puzzles of Portal, then maybe there's some real potential going on. And that maybe that's why it's taken so long, because it sounds like a, a, a huge upheaval. Yeah. And if it takes them six years to design it on paper first, then make it with a new engine, then I'm happy with that. I think potentially game-breaking design concerns, portal guns in combat, and especially if they go further down the route of open areas. Imagine if it was, you know, more like the latter stages of Episode 2 or something like Far Cry 3, you know, where it's actually set in, in wide open areas. The, the potential for crazy, you know, just game-breaking exploits and shit um, while still trying to tell the, the kind yeah. of story that they do. Uh, I mean, yeah, so James. there's potential to end up standing in one corner of whatever room or environment you've walked into and just fire portals everywhere and shoot through them to take everyone out, isn't there? Which actually sounds quite cool in all honesty, I think. But yeah. um, That aside, um, just concentrating on sort of other people's reactions and comments about Episode 3 slash Half-Life 3, I think obviously Valve had the intention to, to start really putting a push for episodic gaming. Um, mm. And it's strange that the word episode is sort of hung over Half-Life now as a, as a bit of a, a joke almost, like episodes, you mean like Valve does it. Um, and yeah. often Valve are held up as a, as a company that did episodic gaming wrong and then Telltale did it right. When I think of episodes, I mean, the Star Wars films are episodes. And, and even when you look at the, the, the prequel films, there was couple of years between three, each of them three always three years yeah, between so, each Star Wars film yeah. yeah so episode doesn't have to mean it comes out every three months now obviously no, Valve no. da- did intend for the episodes to come out a bit quicker than they did um, at least as far as I understand it the intention was for them not to be spaced quite so far apart mm, no, I don't um, think so but I w- and, and now it's led to this kind of reaction where People who aren't fans of the series, obviously I wouldn't expect them to be looking forward to the next instalment of Half-Life. But even people who are now, you know, you'll see tweets or comments, you know, on podcasts or in forums of like, oh, I don't care anymore. It's been too long. I just, no, I'd rather they moved on to something new. Mm. And I understand because whenever Valve tackles something new, it's quite exciting. But equally well, when they've gone back to Half-Life, it's quite exciting as well, I think. Mm. Um, And touching on Star Wars... A lot of people after the prequels said, oh, Star Wars don't care. There was an awful lot of people lauding Disney purchasing LucasArts and what was going to happen about In Star Wars. In the hope Wars. that it might mean some yeah, so yeah, better films. Yeah. People sort of cynically saying, oh, it's been too long, don't care about Half-Life. Yeah, when it's announced, we'll see who cares about Half-Life and who doesn't. I'm certainly in the camp who's looking forward to whatever Valve have got to, to put forward. And as long as they want to take for it, frankly, because... Yeah. Th- they they will, if it means they make and remake the game three times, be it Episode 3 or Half-Life 3, fine, do it. I want to see what they're happy to put out and, and their story. And in terms of my hopes for it, whatever they want to give me, honestly. Mm. I know that sounds like a, a bit of uh, fanboyism towards Valve, but I'm just interested to see what they do because obviously the temptation is, after a long period of time, that they've got to outdo themselves in some way, and that might incline them towards not just following the story on as we expect it to go and and immediately follow it on you know going to the borealis but they've laid a lot of groundwork and it it wasn't by accident they decided to put the borealis in and draw that link uh to to portal um 
in in both directions obviously references to black mesa in uh, in in portal so mm. yeah there's a lot of effort going into this i don't think they're going to they're going to do anything lightly and if if it takes time to put something as special as as half-life 2 and and episode 2 particularly together then take the time i know that um you know these universes can exist where there are tonally disparate elements but portal is very although there is humor in half-life mm. in the half-life games portal is very much heavier on the humor do you not think it would be a bit of a juxtaposition to have portal and half-life intertwined well don't forget portal's humor is very much glados's humor and and she is a, a an ai that has kind of started to decay you know mm. that's where her malevolence and her malicious sense of humor comes from. But it has jolly songs and cakes and choirs yeah, of robots. And, but it's also confined know. very much in in within the walls of Aperture Science. That doesn't speak to what the world is like outside those walls. I know what you mean in terms of the game, the tone of the game, do they mm. fit together? But in in terms of the world, well, we don't really know what the world looks like outside of Aperture Science. Except that we do, it looks like Half Life because we know they're the same universe. Yeah, and in um, fact, that that bit at the end of Portal One, where you see the outside, does just look like and yeah. could easily be from a level from from a Half Life yeah, game. Yeah, I, I think I, I get what you mean. It, it, if we're now playing as Gordon Freeman going into Aperture Science and Glados is there taunting us, is that going to feel right? I don't think they'll do that. Um, I don't necessarily see that there'll be a need to take Gordon Freeman inside aperture science the way we've seen it um it, it all depends because the other thing we don't know about the the portal games and and half-life is how the timelines compare because mm. obviously not directly i don't think there's been that much of a clue obviously well, glados talks about black mesa incident but we also know that Chell has been kept inside aperture science and, and a hundred years or more. Yeah, that's passed, true you know? because the Borealis is missing in Portal Two, but long yeah. missing. Even so, between Portal yeah. One and and Portal Two, there was an awfully long. I, I want to say they actually said it was a hundred years between the two. Uh-huh. I can't quite remember. And, mm. and if that's the case, already Glados was singing a song about the incident at Black Mesa in Portal One. So yeah, by Portal Two, enough. that's you know almost certainly a completely different timeline. That just and the Borealis is is in Portal Two, so are we going to see the Borealis before it ever gets to Aperture Science? <laughs> um, who knows? <laughs> Interesting, as you say. Josh, what do you expect, and what do you want from Valve? Um, this might sound like a rubbish answer, but like Darren said and James said as well, um, whatever Valve want to give me, to be honest, because I, Valve have never made a a game I didn't like slash love mm. and I completely trust them to deliver on the promise of Half-Life 3. One thing I would say that I wouldn't like them to do um, and you've been touching on this already is that I wouldn't want an outright like blending of Portal and Half-Life. Mm. I don't want to see the Portal gun in Half-Life, I think these though the mechanics of Portal and the characters of Portal should remain in Portal. 
Whereas I don't mind aperture science coming in and some funky aperture science like technology becoming a part of the Half-Life universe. That's okay. But I think there needs to be a divide between those two franchises. And I think the Portal Gun and GLaDOS is that divide. Um, But yeah, apart from that, you know, show me something I've never seen before, Valve. Uh, You know, I I don't want to see something i'm expecting i want to see something unexpected so yeah whatever you want to do ask me what i want to see what do you want to see what do you want to see (laughs) half-life cut (laughs) (laughs) it's probably out there in some sort of mod you could probably get it a little vortigaunt in a minecart that would be amazing alex vance in a little car Surely, (laughs) is dog a separate character or is dog Alex's cart? Oh, good point. Yeah, we could go down that route, couldn't we? (laughs) Gordon Freeman's just on a crowbar. As long as Alex isn't on a train, because that doesn't apparently end too well, generally. (laughs) No, no. Uh, On rails driving game, not a good idea. Anyway, uh, Dom's beard says, "I've always thought Episode Three would be at the end of this gen, and Half-Life Three would be unveiled, showing off Valve's new engine, the successor to Source." So that could still happen. Episode yeah. 3 may be nearly finished and they just... Ha- wouldn't it be awesome if Episode 3 had been in the works for the last five years and all we've seen is that concept art but it's actually just going to come out like, and they're going to announce it like three weeks before it's released or something. How 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 exciting would that be? Yeah, I, I don't like to think about these kind of things because that sounds amazing and using Episode 3 as a like a teaser jet hype generator for actual Half-Life yeah. 3 is too much for my brain to handle and if it doesn't happen <laughs> I will be upset that's that's it like the way I've dealt with this non-Half-Life existence in my life is just just ignore it and don't think about it at all and then it will come and you'll be like yay but yeah I, I, I'm not thinking about it at all and it, it's just it's doing me alright so far so for Dom's beard to say that I'm, I'm oh god it's been so long we did manage to scrabble together a few three-word reviews so um if you will in the usual fashion please gentlemen a foolish uk says cliffhanger long wait kai enix gideon says josh has this does that refer to something in particular i think i think he's saying i represent his faith in josh's opinion of the uh okay zephyr light says alex gets development so quasimod uh chimed in with his Magnuson device bullshit um, and he asterisked it with I was enjoying episode 2 up until that bit oh I see a loophole in the three word review system there well yeah uh, how many words can you put in appendices after the three word review yeah it's, it's a bit of a cheat um, but I think it's worth ex- worth explaining yeah I- elaborating uh, the visible man says the eternal cliffhanger it may well be Maybe that'll be it. Maybe there will be no more Half-Life ever. Right, then to summarise our feelings of the two episodes collectively or individually, I don't mind which, uh, would you recommend that people play them if they haven't, James? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a tough one when you talk about the series as a a whole, obviously, and it's equally tough to try and separate episode one and two from the series. You've already said, Leon, if if people are going to play Half-Life Episode 1 and 2, they kind of probably already have. If you're listening to these podcasts and you have never played a Half-Life game, 
yeah, absolutely. Whether you could play episodes one and two out of context, I'm not so sure. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, these two games are, are fantastic. I think it's quite interesting as well. I seem to remember some uh, some criticism levelled at the length of these episodes being quite short as they are. Hmm. Um, but actually, when you think back, I mean, three to four hours is quite short. Five to six hours as episode two is, there's plenty of single player games now, and okay, they'll have multiplayer, you know, modes as well. Yeah, but, there, but there's yeah, this wasn't of full single price. Player so. Campaigns, yeah, exactly. That that run to five or six hours if you're being leisurely about them. You know, I'm th- thinking of shooters in particular, first person. Yeah, shooters, I only so. just bought episode um, two on on Steam um, yeah. because I had it on 360 before, and I paid. It was in a sale in the autumn sale, two pound ninety nine for five hours of quality entertainment is certainly not a yeah. about and it, it felt you know it felt like a it felt as good and long as a yeah, yeah like a the, call um, of duty campaign or whatever when you actually think especially episode two episode one can be condensed a bit more easily but episode two there's so much going on there's actually aspects of some of what's going on that we didn't didn't touch on you know the the train yard chase with the helicopter coming after you um, yeah. We didn't really go into the the ambush that's laid for you in the little hillside town, aside from to speak about it earlier on. And there's so many diverse um, environments to traverse. Mm. Um, Valve has always their attention to detail in terms of their level design and and the lighting that they use to draw you forward and sound design to really set the the atmosphere perfectly. It it's just a, an absolute masterclass episode too. Episode one stands as that sort of awkward middle chapter uh, linking the two, but that doesn't lessen the fact that it's it's a very good game. And the character development of, of Alex um, and her relationship with, with Gordon, albeit quite a, a one-sided affair, is, uh, is really quite special, given AI tagalongs, as, as you mentioned, can be sort of potholes in the road for plenty they of can go awry yeah but yeah it, it feels right in this and and the as i called it a gut punch it really felt like a gut punch even replaying through the game at the end of episode two it feels like valve have just got you right where they want you and they know how to pull those strings and i i, I can't wait for whenever wherever however we get more half-life two <laughs> half-life sorry yeah, I think there is quite, for me, a large quality gap between episodes one and two. I think uh, one, by most people's standards, is uh, a decent game, but by Valve Half-Life standards is quite weak. I think it's the weakest bit of Half-Life there is probably. Um, it doesn't particularly move the story on um, any, and it feels very bitty, very sort of piecemeal. It doesn't feel like a coherent, contiguous whole uh, it feels like a lot of different sort of sections kind of fairly clumsily bolted together, which is something that I never felt about Half-Life 2 or um, and or Half-Life 1, apart from Zen. Um, episode 2, however, is uh, absolutely excellent. Going back to it reminded me that it does come very close to the quality of the main Half-Life 2 game um, and has some... some elements to it which are definitely as good as as the main half-life 2 game um try some things some some of them work some of them don't work so well may depend upon your taste um but uh yes just if you have if you did ever play half-life 1 or 2 or both 
and haven't played episode two, you really ought to sort that out. And it is worth playing for episode one because it, on easy, it will only take you three hours just to keep up with what's going on. It's probably worth the investment of time and the small amount of money just for the bit where Dog uses his uh, hand as an a- antenna. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a couple of sequences in there that are quite good. We mentioned the elevator sequence where you're um, fending off zombies. That's quite tense. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've hardly talked about it as because we've talked so much before about in Half-Life 2 about the actual the, the gameplay, the shooter mechanics, you know, most people know how the source engine feels. That is all there. There's no uh new weapons other than the this, you know, things like the Magnuson device, but it all still looks, feels and sounds great fun to fire and and in and against a good menagerie of enemies to take down in in different situations. It's still fun shooting head crabs, you know. It is worth playing, and Alex is great. There's moments in there where you're in the core, and she's looking at you through the glass, and she's like, it makes her feel believable. Like she's looking at you, like rooting for you and stuff like that. And that's really, it's really worth playing for those moments. Um, episode two is worth playing for pretty much everything about it. Like the, the the world, like the white forest, actually feels the the name white forest is so apt. Like that forest is so bright but at the same time like it's so grim you know i mean like when you when you step outside from the tunnels and it's all it it, it feels white the sky feels really white and beautiful and i think it's um, i assume it's meant to be an area that's snowy at other times but it also seems to be a reference to the pale wood of, of a lot of the trees Ah, all right. Yeah, it's it's really clever because it's called White Forest, and that's meant to be. It sounds quite like a magical place, but then you look in the distance and you see a massive bridge with combine treading all over it, and you're like, oh shit, yeah, this is still quite a bad place. Uh, the episodes are essential to the Half-Life. Um, well, for any Half-Life fan, like if you haven't played the episodes, you can pick up the Orange Box, which at forty quid was a bargain. <laughs> uh, for a tenner, maybe or maybe less mm. than that now, it is an absolute steal. Like. Playing it, playing the orange box again on the consoles. Um, but when you put that disc in, you, you just you don't really appreciate how much content is on that disc. And then you put it in, you like, and you see the menus and the music starts kicking off. You're like, yeah, there is five games. Admittedly, Team Fortress Two isn't really there anymore. It is not on the consoles. No, it's not. Not really. Well, yeah, there, there was a few. There's like 15 people playing it when I chimed in the other day. Just, but it's not. It's not. It's not the PC one no. at all. Um, so yeah, but if you played Half-Life 2 and not the episodes, then like you say, you need to sort it out, because they are great. Combine Hunter Joshua. Um, it's no secret that I really like Half-Life 2. No. Um, so yeah, I love both these episodes. Not as much as Half-Life 2, the original game, but almost as mm-hmm. much. Um, episode 1 definitely is the weak link in the chain mainly because it just doesn't do anything different it just kind of goes along with what half-life 2 did already and i get why that's disappointing but it's still half-life 2 and i just inherently enjoy the way half-life 2 plays and the enemies and everything about it so i can still extract a lot of enjoyment out of episode 1 but episode 2 is definitely the highlight out of these two um the combine hunters are one of my favorite enemies in any game they were just not only the way they're designed artistically and the sound design and everything like that but just they're really fun to fight um and 
I, you know, the narrative is taken in some really interesting directions in episode two, and yeah, it as Darren said before, it, because it's a smaller campaign than episode, uh, not episode one, uh, the main game of Half Life Two, it does feel like uh, a more concise argument as to why Half Life is such an excellent experience to be had. Yeah, I, I if you haven't played these and you love Half-Life 2, go and play these because they're essential um, for not only the narrative, but I think there are some gameplay sections in these episodes that you're really missing out on if you've uh, dismissed them. Thanks, everybody. A quick roundup then. We've gone quite long, but then we do tend to on our series specials. We may well do for Shenmue. That's one of the shows coming up. And we've got, along with Akami next week, uh, Applejack 1 and 2. Shenmue is in between those two. Papo and Joe, uh, Applejacks and Papo and Joe should be in the new year. Still to be confirmed, though, um, Shenmue 2 also in January. Tony and I will be finally getting our heads together Uh the day after recording this issue. It is currently the 6th of December. We're going to speak tomorrow and try and thrash out the next set of Cane and Rinse issues so you can go and source all those games and the ones you want to play anyway. The full upcoming schedule will be able to be found on the blog at canerinse.com. You can take a look at our Quick Rinse videos with Darren Gargett, Josh and Darren Foreman via the blog or the Cane and Rinse YouTube tra- channel. We have a Twitter account at Cana Rinse, of course, facebook.com slash Cana Rinse, and we have an email address that nobody uses, canarinse at gmail.com. And naturally, we are grateful for your support through iTunes subscriptions, reviews, and ratings. And please, most of all, as I always say, and I mean it, come and join the forum. We talk about games all the time, not just once a week on the podcast. The Cana Rinse community at canarinse.com slash forum just remains for me, Leon Cox, to thank Joshua Garrity, Darren Gargett, and James Carter, and we'll leave you raising a glass to Eli Vance and some sombre music. <laughs> <laughs>